either international man, woman, or non-binary individual of mystery. It's your old pal, Movies. Pick six movies. What? You've never been here? First, thanks for coming. Second, somebody else has what you have on, but don't make a big deal of it. Here on the show, what we do is me, Bo Ransdell, and my oldest pal, Chad Cooper, we select a theme and then choose six movies built around that theme. We tell you a little story related to the film, as well as some bona fides of the movie itself, and then we get into the film, dissecting it like so many planarians. This is season 13, Bonds, James Bonds. And we are choosing one film from each of the performers who have donned the 007 moniker. After tussling with Goldfinger, we are now on to the guy who was only James Bond once, which means we can never do this season again. See, we're already a good news podcast. So hop in the Aston Martin, mind the ejector seat, and let Chad take the wheel and lay down an oil slick of information in this overly tortured metaphor. That's right. It's on Her Majesty's Secret Service on Pick 6 Movies. Take it away, Chad. You might have asked your question, who's your favorite actor to ever play James Bond? Interesting. Because here's the thing about your answer, if you even had an answer. It immediately gives insight into who you are and maybe more directly when you were born. Older audiences or purists of the James Bond film franchise, they always cite the original Bond, Sean Connery. If you grew up in the 80s, more than likely Roger Moore is your man. If you grew up in the 90s or maybe just a Remington Steel fan, you're probably a Brosnan bro. Timothy Dalton has a small but ardent following. Newcomers to the franchise may only know Daniel Craig as 007. But there are two names that are rarely mentioned when you ask people, who is your favorite James Bond? And strangely enough, they are the actors who are both credited as being the second James Bond. The first of these two second James Bonds was David Niven. David Niven portrayed a retired version of James Bond in the 1967 ensemble cast spy comedy that was loosely adapted from Ian Fleming's novel Casino Royale. In this movie, James Bond is forced out of retirement to see what's up with the growing number of disappearing spies. In the film, six other agents also pretend to be James Bond, including Peter Sellers, who plays a baccarat master and spy named Evelyn Trimble. Sellers at the time was very well known for his portrayal of Inspector Clouseau in the Blake Edwards film The Pink Panther, as well as playing three distinctively different characters in Stanley Kubrick's Doctor Strangelove, one of the characters being the titular Dr. Strangelove. Casino Royale also featured Woody Allen and Orson Welles and John Huston and Jacqueline Bissett and Ursula Andres, who actually had appeared in the original James Bond film, Dr. No. This version of Casino Royale was released in theaters in April of 1967, and that was just two months prior to the James Bond film, You Only Live Twice, being released. That film was the fifth James Bond movie that also starred Sean Connery. But Casino Royale wasn't in the official canon of the James Bond films as most people know them today. Now, how did that happen? Well, we got to go back 12 years. In 1955, Ian Fleming sold the film rights to the novel Casino Royale to film producer Gregory Radoff and Michael Garrison for $6,000, or about sixty dollars by today's standards. Radoff died in December in 1960. After Radoff's death, Garrison went on to bring a unique small screen version of James Bond to American households known as the Wild Wild West. And Radoff's widow sold the rights to the Casino Royale novel to Charles K. Feldman. Now, Feldman, he was a movie producer. 
and he wanted to get Casino Royale made as a feature film by Ian Productions, which was the company that was behind all of the Sean Connery James Bond movies. But Feldman and Ian Productions, they couldn't strike a deal. So Feldman decided to make his own James Bond movie as a satire, as kind of a spoof of the spy genre, alongside the more traditional films starring Connery as 007. Production on Casino Royale was a mess, with a game of musical chairs when it came to writers and directors. The movie was released, and it was a financial success, sort of. It pulled in about $42 million worldwide, and Burt Bacharach's musical score for the film earned him an Oscar nomination for his song, The Look of Love, a cover of which was featured in the spy spoof film Austin Powers' International Man of Mystery, which also featured a cameo by Burt Bacharach himself. Now, despite Casino Royale's financial success, critical reception to the film was not very good. The movie's production was highly disorganized and filled with onset drama. Peter Sellers refused to work with Orson Welles. Whole scenes of the script were never shot and just left out of the final production. And the final film had a total of six different people credited with directing the movie. And this unconventional approach to making a James Bond film, it was reflected in a somewhat dysfunctional final film. Now, it should be noted that David Niven was author Ian Fleming's first choice to play the iconic character that he created in his novels. Niven was 56 years old when he played James Bond, which was okay because he was playing an older Bond coming out of retirement. And in the film, it's somewhat implied that the moniker of James Bond and the 007 designation was actually passed on to the current Bond, Sean Connery. Some critics felt that Niven was a perfect choice to play Bond due to his distinguished approach to the character. Others felt he didn't have the machismo to pull off the character that audiences had come to expect in a silver screen James Bond that had been established by Sean Connery. Shortly after Casino Royale hit theaters, Sean Connery returned in You Only Live Twice. Now, during the filming of this movie, the relationship between Connery and the movie's producers became strained in many ways, starting with Connery not being satisfied with his salary of $750,000 and 25% of all merchandising revenue. The situation was complicated by Connery's newfound fame, bringing with it some notable challenges, including a reported on-set stalker during the filming of You Only live twice and him just constantly being hounded by the paparazzi. Connery announced that he would only return for a sixth James Bond film if he was paid one million dollars and some of the film's profits. Producers, well, they felt differently and they decided to part ways with Mr. Connery and decided to go looking for a fresh new face to don the tux, get behind the wheel of an Aston Martin, and order his martini shaken and not stirred. This brings us to the second actor cast to play the second version of James Bond, and is perhaps the actor most rarely mentioned when you ask people to name their favorite James Bond. Everyone you ask chooses somebody other than George Lazenby. Well, almost everyone. George Lazenby is a native of Australia. He was born in 1939 in Goulburn, New South Wales, to his father, also named George, who was a railway worker, and his mother, Joan, who worked in a department store. When George was three years old, he had a condition that caused him to not release urine from his kidneys properly. And so he went into surgery and was opened up 67 times. And when all was said and done, he was left with half a kidney and a life expectancy that would not exceed the age of 12. And at this young age, George knew, consciously or unconsciously, he better get on with his life because he did not have a whole lot of life left to live. And so, when George was six years old, he stole his first car. 
It was his uncle's car, a 1936 Ford. And why did he steal a car? Well, George's family was too poor to own a car. So the logical next thing to do if you wanted to drive a car was to hop into the driver's seat of somebody else's car and head down the road with no regard for any of the things that he could barely see as he was peeking over the steering wheel as this vehicle motored along. Now, it may come as a surprise, but George wasn't a very good student in school. He didn't really see the point of going to school. Look, if you're going to die before you hit your teens, would you spend all of that time sitting in a boring classroom for the majority of your short life? Of course you wouldn't. Now, to overcome this school boredom, George decided to spice things up a bit. One day, he brought a snake into the classroom. Another day, he went down and captured bats in the sewers and released them in the school. And whenever he created trouble, he got punished. He knew the risk, but even at a young age, he had no real regard for any authority figures. Then an interesting thing happened to young George. He turned 12 years old. Then he turned 13. Then he turned 14. Then he turned 15. And then George discovered sex, which is pretty awesome. I highly recommend it if you haven't given it a try yet. George's new hobby of sex helped him pass the time as a teenager, but George continued to be a terrible student in school. And when he went to high school graduation with his mother, every student received a certificate of graduation. Well... Almost everyone. George refused to take the classes that were needed for him to get his graduation certificate, and instead he took a job as a mechanic at a car dealership that his uncle got him. The job didn't pay very well, and George quickly realized that there was a job that did pay well, well, better than his job as a mechanic, and that was as a used car salesman. George asked to be a salesman, he got out on the lot, and you know how some people are just born salespeople? Well, that wasn't George. He was terrible. And when you were a terrible salesman in the late 1950s, there was just one thing that you could do. Go take the Dale Carnegie course, How to Win Friends and Influence People, which is what George did. And there was one simple thing that George took away from this course. Listen, don't talk. And that's exactly what George did. He listened to customers. He didn't talk. And he started selling cars, a lot of cars. And over time, George became the used car sales manager. Now, the local embassy in Australia, they used the car lot where George worked as the place to sell their used vehicles, which gave George some connections to a classier group of people than he'd ever known in his life. These connections got George invited to all sorts of embassy parties with people who drank champagne and ate caviar. And one night at an embassy party, George saw a beautiful woman named Belinda, who was with her boyfriend. But before the night was over, George went up to Belinda and in front of her boyfriend said, I'm going to take you out next week. George found out who she was, called her up at home and asked her out. She reluctantly said yes, and George purposefully ignored all of her calls to cancel the date. Now, arriving at Belinda's home, a beautiful, large house on a sprawling estate, George knew he was in over his head. Now, this thought was punctuated by Belinda's brother tackling George to the ground, demanding to know whether or not George wanted to fuck his sister. George was eventually invited into the home where he saw Belinda's father in the house, sitting in a formal room alongside another man who George felt bore a striking resemblance to Bob Menzies, the prime minister of Australia at the time. Now, this resemblance wasn't really all that striking because Belinda's father was, at the time, having tea with Bob Menzies, the actual Prime Minister of Australia. Belinda's family had money. A lot of money. George did not. And Belinda's father did not like George. Perhaps that's why Belinda was so taken with George. But honestly, George was charming. And he was handsome. He was funny and carefree. And Belinda was beautiful. She was intoxicating. And George fell in love. Belinda was his first true love. 
But as so many beautiful young women do, Belinda had an ex-boyfriend who invited her to a formal ballroom dance. And George gave Belinda an ultimatum, go to that ball and I will never see you again. And Belinda went to the dance. George went to get drunk. But as George drank away his sorrows, Belinda appeared at the bar like a vision. And the two left together. George awoke the next day in bed alone to find a note from Belinda expressing her love for him. And for the first time, George found himself in love with a woman who loved him back. And life was beautiful. Belinda was high society. George was not. And this created friction between Belinda and her parents and George. And as often happens, Belinda chose George over her father's disapproving demands. Now, this prompted Belinda's father to send her to England for three months. And with that departure, Belinda boarded a ship and left Australia, taking with her George's heart. Belinda and George, they exchanged letters of love, but over time, the frequency of correspondence dwindled. George began to think that Belinda may have met someone new, and being a man in love with nothing to lose, who wasn't supposed to even see his teenage years, and he really did enjoy having sex, George got on a boat to go to England, leaving Australia for the first time in his life. The ship left Sydney, went to Melbourne, then Singapore, then to Delhi, Italy, Gibraltar, and then finally Tilbury, England. George arrived in England, got off the ship to find waiting for him, not Belinda. George went to her address, no Belinda. And he waited, and he waited, and he waited, no Belinda. George rented a small room while thinking about Belinda and how he could find her. He'd come halfway around the world to find his one true love and she was gone again. Months passed and George continued to search for his love, but nothing turned up until one day, by a stroke of luck, George saw Belinda in a pub with her new boyfriend. Now, Belinda wasn't too thrilled to see George as he entered the bar, and she was less happy to see George when he punched her new boyfriend in the face. George left the bar with a broken heart and possibly a broken hand, and George didn't know what to do. So he did the only thing that he could do. He went to sell cars. George's heartache was even more confused as Belinda reached out to him with a letter saying that they could be friends as they were both living in England far away from home. They spent time together and George never crossed the line of treating Belinda like anything other than a close friend, but not because he didn't want to have sex with her. The two eventually traveled to a nearby city as tourists do, and George felt this was his opportunity to get back in Belinda's good standing, as well as get back into her pants. But on the night that he had planned to sneak into her room to romance his true love, he was stricken with an explosive case of diarrhea. This prevented him from fulfilling his amorous advances on Belinda, which served him well because his his gentlemanly nature and lack of aggressive courtship drew Belinda back to him and into his arms as she realized that she truly did love George, the man who'd come halfway around the world because he loved her. George and Belinda moved in together. George was selling cars and not just any cars. He was selling Mercedes and George was making money and life was good. One day, a photographer came into the Mercedes dealership and asked George if he could take some photos of him. George thought this was a pickup line and that the photographer was probably a homosexual. But the photographer quickly informed George that he wasn't interested in him in that way and that he actually took photos of male models and felt George might be a good candidate for some on-the-side modeling work due to his rugged, handsome good looks. George agreed to get some headshots made. He took the photos to a modeling agency and he got a call back to be in a photo shoot with babies. See, it turns out the original model quit because the babies kept pissing on him during the photo shoot. But George stepped in and did his best to model as a handsome dad with a newborn infant, all the while dodging baby piss as it spurted out towards his face. After that, everybody wanted to work with George Lazenby. Well, 
almost everybody. Just like that, George Lazenby became one of the top models in England. This led to him landing a job as the spokesman for Big Fry Chocolates in a national television commercial. George Lazenby leapt from the advertising pages of magazines onto the televisions of England seemingly overnight. Life was better than Lazenby could even imagine it being, which in a story about lost love and found love is exactly when things fall apart again. On a photo shoot in Spain, Lazenby slept with a female model who later invited George to come spend the week with her. George called Belinda and said his photo shoot had been extended by a week. But when George returned home to Belinda, she knew. And in an instant, Belinda was gone. The girl of his dreams, his perfect life. He lost Belinda for a second time. And this time, it was his fault. George's career continued with great success, and during the 1960s, free love was everywhere. And for a young man with money in his pockets and a growing level of fame, this brought many women into Lazenby's life to try and mend his broken heart, which they kind of sort of did. Lazenby was living a very adventurous life filled with sex and drugs and more sex in between modeling gigs. A fellow male model who also enjoyed sex and drugs, well, he asked Lazenby to fill in for him to attend a movie screening with a woman that turned out to be an acting agent. His male model friend had double booked his evening with his girlfriend and the buddy didn't want to stand up the acting agent's invitation to this movie premiere that was going to be full of A-list celebrities. Lazenby went to the film screening and here he met acting agent Maggie Abbott. Maggie Abbott found George Lazen to be handsome and charming and she called up George a few weeks later while he was on vacation in Paris to say, there's a movie role you should audition for. Get back to London, we need to talk in person. Now naturally, Lazenby blew it off because he's not an actor, he was a model. He didn't have any acting experience and this meant nothing to him. After a few more phone calls, Maggie Abbott and Lazenby finally met in her office and it was here that she told him, I think you should audition for the role of James Bond. Lazenby's sense of confidence and the fact that he was so sure of himself at every turn combined with his good looks, all of this prompted Maggie Abbott to suggest someone whose only acting experience included toting around a giant crate of chocolates in a TV commercial. Lazenby thought about it, and like so many other decisions in his life, he thought, why not? So he went down to the casting office to find a room full of handsome young men in tailored suits all looking to be the next James Bond. But what Lazenby didn't know was that Maggie Abbott, she couldn't even get him in for an audition. And that Lazenby would have to charm his way into the casting director's office if he wanted to get the role. Complicating things was the fact that to be featured in a major motion picture required performers to be union actors, which of course Lazenby was not. So no amount of charm was ever going to land him an audition, let alone get him the role. Maggie Abbott told Lazenby to do whatever it takes to get in to see the casting director and that Lazenby should channel his inner James Bond. So Lazenby, well, being Lazenby, he went to a nearby tailor where Sean Connery had custom suits made. And he said, I want a suit like Sean Connery. And as it turned out, Connery had ordered a suit months back, but he never picked it up. So Lazenby took the suit. And Lazenby knew from his time selling cars that Sean Connery got his hair cut at a nearby barber. So Lazenby went there and got a haircut just like Sean Connery. Lazenby sported his own Rolex watch, and with the suit and the look and the style, he returned as the full James Bond package. 
Lazenby entered the office of the casting agency and forewent personal charm in favor of just running past the receptionist when she wasn't looking. He dashed into the office of Dyson Lovell, who was the casting director for the forthcoming James Bond film. Dyson Lovell was on the phone with Harry Saltzman, who was the producer along with Albert R. Broccoli that were responsible for bringing the previous five James Bond movies to the big screen. Lazenby entered Dyson's office looking like a million bucks and he said, I heard you looking for James Bond. Dyson told Saltzman, I think there's somebody you should see. Dyson escorted Lazenby across the street to Saltzman's office, where Lazenby did what every great salesman does. He sold himself, mostly by making a bunch of bullshit up. Lazenby said he worked in China and Hungary and Russia and Ukraine and a whole bunch of other countries where nobody could go and check his work history. And when Lazenby and Dyson entered Saltzman's office, Lazenby refused to sit down at Saltzman's request. Why would Lazenby start doing what he's told now by anyone in a position of authority? Next, Saltzman wanted to know what Lazenby had done in his career, whereupon Lazenby looked over at Dyson and said, ask him, I just told him my life story, cleverly removing any chance that Lazenby could screw up the lies that he had told Dawson on their walk over. Peter Hunt, the director of the forthcoming James Bond movie, he was out scouting locations in Switzerland and he couldn't be back till later in the week. So Saltzman told Lazenby, come back later in the week. Lazenby said, I can't come back later in the week. I'm doing a film in Paris. Saltzman, a man with little patience and no real familiarity of being told no, found himself face to face with a man who blatantly refused to do what Saltzman demanded of him. What Saltzman didn't know was that Lazenby was all but shitting his pants because Lazenby was completely full of shit and he knew it and he was afraid Saltzman and Dyson were about to find out. Saltzman blinked and he agreed to pay Lazenby the 500 pounds that Lazenby had lied about getting for this made up movie that he wasn't working on in Paris. And Lazenby agreed to return on Friday to meet the director, Peter Hunt. Lazenby left the office, called Maggie Abbott, and he told her, hey, I just got 500 pounds to come back later in the week. Naturally, she didn't believe him, but he had the check in his hand. George Lazenby wore a disguise, snuck into an office, fooled the bad guys, and pulled off a heist while they looked on, none the wiser just like James Bond would do. Lazenby returned to meet the director, Peter Hunt, who wasn't too happy to have been called back from Switzerland to meet Lazenby. But when Lazenby met Hunt, he decided to listen to his gut once again. And for some reason, he came clean with the director and he said, I've never acted a day in my life. Hunt was so impressed that Lazenby had been able to bamboozle two of the most ruthless producers in Hollywood with no acting experience. And Hunt didn't rat out Lazenby. On the contrary, Hunt said, stick to your story and I'll make you the next James Bond. Hunt was on Lazenby's side. When Saltzman found out Lazenby's only real screen time was in those Big Fried Chocolate Guy commercials, he was 100% against Lazenby as the next James Bond. Hunt stuck to his guns and demanded screen tests with Lazenby as James Bond, which they did. Screen tests for acting, stunts, horseback riding, swimming, fighting. One night, a man and a woman showed up at Lazenby's apartment, and the man told Lazenby that the woman wanted to have sex with him which they proceeded to do while the man sat quietly in the corner. Now remember, Lazenby is a big fan of sex. After they finished up, the woman got dressed, whereupon the man told Lazenby the people at the studio just wanted to make sure you weren't gay, seeing as you're a male model and all. Over the span of four months, Lazenby went through continued screen tests, including one fight sequence where Lazenby actually knocked out one of the stunt guys with a single punch. And Saltzman decided, that's it, we got our next James Bond. 
Lazenby watched Sean Connery as Bond on the big screen. And now, without any acting experience, he was cast as one of the most iconic characters in cinematic history. Lazenby had the job, but producers said he couldn't tell anybody because it was going to be a big publicity event to unveil the next James Bond to the world. Lazenby went to France to relax and await the announcement, but he had to share the news with someone, and he called the person that mattered most, Belinda. Lazenby told her the news and said, come see me in France. He was no longer a poor mechanic. He was going to be a movie star. He was of equal status to Belinda and her family, and most importantly, her father. Belinda agreed to come see George in France, and they would be together, like they were when life was good. And then... Saltzman called and told Lazenby, you have to return to London for a press conference immediately. Belinda was already on the plane and she arrived in France. George met her at the airport and said that he had to return to London immediately, but she agreed to stay and wait for him. Lazenby got on the plane and he flew to London and he never returned. Lazenby looks back on this time in his life with heartbreak and regret and says, when the timing doesn't work out the way you want it to, it was just never meant to be. George Lazenby was presented unto the world as the man to be the next big screen incarnation of Ian Fleming's most famous secret agent, James Bond, starring in the sixth official Saltzman and Broccoli produced film in the series on Her Majesty's Secret Service. And George Lazenby took everything in stride with his ever-present self-assurance and confidence, all the while thinking, as Lazenby put it, what the fuck have I gotten myself into? The movie was shot primarily in Switzerland, co-starring Lazenby, again, a man with no acting experience. And he would be surrounded by a cast of actors who had decades of acting experience on their resume. Diana Rigg was cast as James Bond's love interest. Rigg previously appeared in the British 1960s television series, The Avengers, see season 12, episode one, for more on that big screen adaptation of that TV series. Telly Sabalas took over the role of Blofeld, Bond's nemesis and leader of the sinister world domination-seeking organization known as Spectre. For continuity, the series maintained many of the performers that served as the staff of the secret intelligence service known as MI6. Lois Maxwell returned as Miss Moneypenny, a role that she would reprise for the first 14 James Bond films, with her last performance in this iconic role being in 1985's A View to a Kill. Bernard Lee returned as M, the guy who is James Bond's boss, a role that he reprised for the first 11 James Bond movies. Desmond Llewellyn returned as Q, the quartermaster of the MI6 super cool spy gadget lab. This was a role that Llewellyn held onto until his death, appearing in 17 James Bond movies. The Ian Fleming novel On Her Majesty's Secret Service was published after the James Bond films were in full swing. The producers of the series, Saltzman and Broccoli, originally wanted to make On Her Majesty's Secret Service after Goldfinger, but due to a rights dispute over the novel, they filmed Thunderball instead. Then, On Her Majesty's Secret Service was slated to follow Thunderball, but the winter in Switzerland didn't leave enough snow to make the movie, so they decided to make You Only Live Twice. About this time, Connery was scheduled to leave the series, and producers wanted to adapt the novel The Man with the Golden Gun, and they wanted Roger Moore to star as James Bond. But political instability in Colombia and the fact that Roger Moore was contractually obligated for another season of the TV show The Saint, well, they pivoted, and the filmmakers decided to revisit On Her Majesty's Secret Service to be 
be the sixth Bond movie in the series. Peter Hunt was brought in to direct his very first feature film. Hunt, who, as noted earlier, was a real supporter of Lazenby taking over the role of James Bond. Well, he himself was no stranger to the film series. Hunt edited Dr. No from Russia with Love, Goldfinger, and Thunderball. After that string of work, he was bumped up to second unit director on You Only Live Twice. Having this much hands-on experience with the first five Bond films, it really made sense that he should sit in the director's chair for the sixth. The producers decided to make the closest adaptation of the book as possible. Almost everything in the book occurs in the film. The movie was light on the science fiction type gadgets, and it made a few inside jokes for fans of the previous Bond movies. Maintaining as much continuity in front of and behind the camera was very purposeful, because the filmmakers knew they were making a huge bet on George Lazenby to fill the tuxedo vacated by Sean Connery. Connery was James Bond. He created the character in the eyes of movie-going audiences, and everybody working on the film knew that if audiences didn't buy Lazenby as Bond, the movie was going to be a disaster. And nobody was more acutely aware of this than George Lazenby himself. Lazenby had to change so many things about who he was, the way he stood, the way he walked, the way he talked. He went to a voice coach to lose his Australian accent. Lazenby had to mold his natural sense of confidence into the role of James Bond, his version of Bond. Lazenby knew he couldn't be the Sean Connery version of Bond, so he did what he always did since he was a young boy. He realized, I shouldn't be here, and at any moment, all of this could end. So you know what? Why not have some fun? And that's exactly what he did. Lazenby had fun with the role and put his own personal stamp on the character. In the iconic opening sequence of every James Bond movie, Bond walks out and while standing, fires a gun into the camera. Lazenby decided he was gonna drop to one knee and fire his gun. And it's the only film in the series where this happens. Lazenby said he didn't know if he was good or terrible when he was making the movie. He was just doing his best faking it along the way and having a good time, surrounded by beautiful women and men with guns. Lazenby was jumping out of helicopters and throwing knives and throwing punches. And about this time, Lazenby really started to get noticed in the public. He was no longer a male model. He was a soon-to-be movie star. Lazenby was making money, flying on private planes, drinking, smoking, partying. This immediate dramatic shift in his lifestyle and all of the fame that accompanied it was bigger than anything he'd ever imagined. And after some time, Lazenby realized, it's not me they're interested in being around, it's James Bond. The movie hadn't even hit theaters yet, and Lazenby was overwhelmed with the impact it was having on his life. Throughout the filming of the movie, Saltzman wanted Lazenby to sign a contract to do six more films. And this contract would dictate how Lazenby could act, what he could do, what he could not do, how he could dress, what he could say, how he could act in public, what kind of other movies he could appear in. Now, to sweeten the deal, they offered Lazenby a million dollars cash as a signing bonus. Lazenby said, I'll think about it. On Her Majesty's Secret Service was scheduled to be released on December 18, 1969, with a premiere in London. After the movie finished shooting, George Lazenby went away, and he grew his hair out long, and he sported a full beard, looking nothing like James Bond. Lazenby said he grew the beard to prevent people from recognizing him as easily, but it was also a real act of defiance, as producers forbid him from promoting the film looking like this. Producers were going to send Lazenby to the United States to promote the movie, but due to his not signing the contract and ongoing refusal to look and behave more Bond-like, the publicity tour was canceled, so Lazenby did exactly what you would expect him to do. He went to the United States anyway, on his own dime. He appeared on talk shows as people wanted to meet the new James Bond, but what they got instead was George Lazenby with long hair and a big beard. 
On December 17, 1969, one day before the movie's premiere, Lazenby went on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson the day before the premiere of On Her Majesty's Secret Service. American TV viewers were getting their first glimpse of the new 007, and they saw someone that didn't look anything like James Bond. And during the interview, George Lazenby told Johnny Carson that On Her Majesty's Secret Service would be his one and only James Bond film. Lazenby had decided he was quitting the role and was not signing a contract. And just like that, George Lazenby walked away from one of the biggest movie franchises of all time. The Tonight Show audience and Johnny Carson were clearly shocked. Bond film producers Saltzman and Broccoli, they were furious with Lazenby's appearance and his announcement, and they felt that both would severely hurt On Her Majesty's Secret Service box office gross. But when the movie opened, it was top at the box office in the U.S. The film ended up making $85 million worldwide, far exceeding its production budget of $10 million. By that measure, the movie was a financial success. However, it fell short compared to the movie's previous installment of the franchise, You Only Live Twice, which pulled in $110 million. And by that measure, the movie didn't meet expectations. Reviews of the film were a little harsh, and they took some shots at Lazenby. Some cited his lack of acting skills, but some critics noted that Connery, he was no great thespian himself. And when you read reviews at the time the movie came out, they're not terrible. They're just not all that great. Now, more modern film critics view On Her Majesty's Secret Service much more favorably. Rotten Tomatoes currently ranks On Her Majesty's Secret Service among the best Bond films with an 80% freshness rating. Film critic James Berdolini said of the movie, with the exception of one production aspect, it is by far the best entry of the long-running James Bond series. The film contains some of the most exhilarating action sequences ever to reach the screen, a touching love story, and a nice subplot that has Agent 007 crossing and then even threatening to resign from Her Majesty's Secret Service. James Bond resigning and leaving everything that came along with being James Bond. Worldwide travel, tailored suits, expensive cars, beautiful women, respect, prestige, fame, fortune, everything. George Lazenby walked away from it all. After the release of the film Lazenby, he worked on a few smaller films where he served in a more creative role, writing and producing. But after walking away from Bond, nobody in the industry was interested in working with him. Lazenby picked up some work here and there on television in Australia and in the U.S., but nothing came close to the superstardom that accompanied the role of James Bond. Lazenby went on to live his life. He invested in real estate. He raced motorcycles. In 1973, he married his girlfriend of three years, Chrissy Townsend. They had two children, Melanie and Zachary, the latter of which was diagnosed with a brain tumor and as a child was given a shortened life expectancy. And Zachary died at the age of 19. Shortly after his death, George Lazenby and his wife divorced. George Lazenby remarried, and he had three more children. And he lived his life, which had its ups and its downs. Some were made public, many were kept private. And over time, Lazenby came to embrace his legacy as a one-and-done James Bond. And in due course, he was embraced by many of the fellow actors who were fortunate enough to also be 007, as they shared correspondence and friendships over the years. But when asked much later in life, why he walked away from being James Bond. Lazenby freely admitted, I don't know. I just didn't feel it in my heart. It was an instinctive thing that's a voice inside you, and you don't think of the consequences. It was a mistake, but this is who I am. I live my life the way I wanted to. George Lazenby wasn't supposed to live beyond age 12, but he did, and he lived a life true to himself. Reflecting on his life decision to walk away from the role of James Bond, Lazenby said, 
It's very difficult for people to understand, but living life on your own terms, in your own way, you feel like it's much fuller. And the best thing you can do is know yourself and feel yourself and be yourself. Yeah, I may not be great, but I'm an original. Who's my favorite James Bond? That's easy. Lazenby. George Lazenby. Now, if you haven't seen the documentary film Becoming Bond over on Hulu, which this introduction leaned heavily on to bring you this incredible story, please check it out as soon as you can. You'll get to see most of what I just told you about played out by really talented actors and actresses, and you'll get a whole lot more information straight from George Lazenby himself as he tells the most real-life Forrest Gump story that I've ever heard about succeeding in Hollywood and in life. But if you were me right now, you'd probably be saying, hey, I know exactly what you're thinking. Well, because you'd be me. And we'd be thinking the same questions. Is On Her Majesty's Secret Service a good movie? Is On Her Majesty's Secret Service a good James Bond movie? And at any point in the film, does George Lazenby dress up as an uncomfortable racist stereotype like Sean Connery did in You Only Live Twice? Well, to answer these questions and many, many more, let's get Bowen here to strap on some skis, hit the slopes, and shoot some bad guys. Ladies and gentlemen, Her Majesties and Her Highnesses, I give you 1969's On Her Majesty's Secret Service. And welcome to Pick Six Movies. I am Chad Cooper, and as always, I am joined by my magnificent, my majestic, my regal partner in crime, Mr. Bo Ransdell. Bo, how are you doing today? It's Count Bo Ransdell to you. <laughs> you know, I've got all the giant books here to prove that I am, in fact, the Count de Beauchamp. How are your earlobes? So this is episode two of season 13, Bonds, James Bonds, where we are featuring six James Bond movies, each starring a different actor portraying James Bond. And in this film, we have George Lazenby as our James Bond. And my question to start things off, Bo, is did you like this movie more than you liked Goldfinger? Yes, I like this more than I like Goldfinger, which is to say that I, I like parts of it. And the only thing I like about Goldfinger is the villain. <laughs> I thought you were going to say the end credits. <laughs> I like the song and I like the villain other than his plan. His plan is stupid, but he is a good villain. Mm -hmm. And then everything else in the movie is tied for third place as a bunch of stuff I don't care about. <laughs> One of the things about this particular film is they really tried to do a faithful adaptation of the novel into the motion picture. So in watching this movie, it felt like a movie that is doing just that. There are certain moments that could have been tweaked to make a better film, but as an adaptation of a novel, it felt like it moved along with the beats of a spy novel as opposed to a spy film. Yeah, I mean, not having read any spy novels really it's hard to say in the sense that it feels like the front half of this is all a lot of setup to the back half maybe mm -hmm. 
Because I do feel like the one of the biggest faults of this film is that it's so front-loaded with uh, Bond's, like, his relationship with Tracy and et cetera, et cetera, that it takes forever for this movie to gain any kind of momentum. Right. Yeah, I, I could see where a lot of that came from the book and, and exploring the interior life of James Bond somewhat, even though I don't think that's something the movie pulls off. Right. Uh, as far as, like, being a character study of Bond or something like that. Full transparency, the extent of my spy novel reading mostly involves the adventures of Encyclopedia Brown. Mine is the novelization of the movie Condor Man. And I've read a fair amount of Black Widow comics. So, I don't know. I guess I am kind of an expert. Our movie starts off the way all Bond movies start off, with the shifting white circles from left to right, and we hear the signature James Bond theme. That is essentially the cinematic equal to, let's get ready to rumble! You know, I noticed this time it's got a, a touch more harpsichord. It does. In this, to let you know that it's the swinging 60s. It sounded to me like it was the James Bond theme that I would expect to hear if this were the James Bond Oogie Boogie Halloween Spectacular, featuring Margaret Hamilton as Margaret, Witch of the West, Billy Hayes as Wilhelmina Witchy-Poo, Billy Barty as Gallows the Butler, Tim Conway as Seymour of the Foreign Legion, Roz Kelly as Pinky Tuscadero, Betty White as Miss Halloween, Florence Henderson as Lady Cicely Westinghouse, and Dottie and Marie as the Kid Tormentors, and don't forget glam-tastic super rock and roll band Kiss as themselves. I always thought that casting of Mrs. Halloween was really controversial with Betty White, but she really brought it. I felt that was the actual cast from the Paul Lynn Halloween special that aired on October 29th, 1976. It aired only once on ABC. And you know who watched that on television as a very young child? Me, because I'm what the kids call today. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. All right. So here's the other thing that kind of throws you when you first see this opening is there's this dude who kind of looks like James Bond that shoots at you. And you're like, wait a second. That's not James Bond. Or is it? He takes a knee. That son of a bitch needs to get up. That's not what you do at the beginning of a Bond movie. Get up off your knee. What kind of protest is this? Right. <laughs> Jesus Christ. People died for this country. You, you can at least stand up while you shoot at the camera, James Bond. As the movie starts off, we see a metallic building placard that reads Universal Exports London Limited. And I'm guessing that this is in front of MI6 because we cut to inside and M and Q are having an argument or debate club practice or a lover's quarrel. And M wraps it up and says, we need to find 007. The prime minister wants to know immediately immediately when we locate him. And then we cut to James Bond and he's driving this black sports car down to a winding road. And this mystery woman, we're later going to find out her name is Tracy. She speeds past James Bond in her red convertible down this crooked highway. And James Bond sees a woman in a car and therefore he must follow her because they, well, you know, might end up having sex. Right. It's like when a fly lands on a Venus flytrap. It's not first degree fly murder. It just (laughs) does what a Venus flytrap does. And in much the same way, James Bond sees a woman alone on a highway and is like, well, I've got to have her. (laughs) That's Connery Bond. We got a new Bond and he does things a little different, but mostly the same. I think that the movie does a very clever job of hiding James Bond's face from the audience's view. We see Bond in shadow, a sort of a, a distant profile. He lights a cigarette and we only get to see his rugged cleft chin that's so deep you could hide three quarters in that thing and not know it. Yeah, Luke Skywalker used to shoot womp rats in it as a kid. Bond sees the red convertible of his prey and it's 
parked askew on the side of the road next to some sand dunes uh, near the ocean. And Bond, he reaches into the glove compartment of his car, and inside are the pieces of a disassembled rifle, and Bond picks up the viewing sight from the rifle and uses it like a spyglass. And he sees Tracy down on the beach, wandering with her hands in the air. And one time, when I was like four or five years old, when I was watching, probably after I saw that Paul Lynn Halloween special. Um, I remember, Bo, I was in an El Camino with my aunt's father-in-law. I was sitting in the car and he told me to open the glove box and hand him his lighter so he could light up a smoke. And when I opened the glove box, inside of it was a loaded 45. Mm-hmm. And I knew it was loaded because he opened it up and showed me the bullets and told me that I should be careful around guns. And this exchange also took place in the parking lot of the liquor store that he owned. And come to think of it, he's the only person that I have ever known that had one of those old-timey penis pumps to make your dick get hard huh you think that's related maybe he didn't show me his penis pump on this particular day i heard about it after he died if he had offered i would have out of curiosity said yes not when i was four or five but when i was older you know and what are we talking about? oh yeah yeah tracy so tracy is in what can only be described as ceremonial robes i don't know what moon goddess she is worshiping at this moment but like i can totally understand why our james bond here would want to stalk a, a 1969 era diana rig mm-hmm. on the beach i get it anyway she just starts walking into the water because apparently uh she's a bit of a drama queen and when he first sees her she's contemplating suicide and that quickly evolves into attempted suicide right and he's just like crikey i better save her because he's australian and then he runs into the water grabs her up and is like oh she's squirming like a crocodile and then (laughs) grabs her onto the beach and then just gives her a little bit of a shake and it's like hey wake up and then when she doesn't he just gives her a couple of smacks for good measure he's james bond well what else is he gonna do right well it was either fucker or smack or wake i guess we're lucky in the sense that he went with the the smack uh-huh. and then she wakes up and he, she's like who are you and he goes bond james bond you know just like the other guy then out of nowhere, some dudes in blue track shoot show up to wrestle. One of them's got a gun. Right. And the other one's got a switchblade. And so the gun goes against Bond's head and the switchblade goes against Tracy's neck. And Tracy seems kind of cool with the thought of being murdered on the beach by a stranger. Just a few seconds ago, she was going to drown herself. She's like, hey, look, throat lacerations, or it's known in some knife enthusiast circles, the Orenthal James. That's just as good a way to die. Yeah, there's a lot of like Tracy interrupted backstory here that we get little glimpses of like she was married to some guy who killed himself in a Maserati I mean we'll get to all this but clearly Tracy has had a rough go of things recently it is what you might call acting out (laughs) the guy with the gun he and Bond just start beating the holy hell out of each other on this beach and it's pretty good because this is Lazenby throwing punches taking punches kudos to him in this movie because he is giving it 110% whenever the opportunity arises yeah his special move is clearly the uppercut because it happens in every fight at least twice it's awesome right it's such great 1960s movie fighting of just katow it's like 
watching Indiana Jones fight. There's a little more of that kind of Batman era yeah. crash zoom to it. Yeah, and it's at least trying to be dynamic with the shots. I still think at the end of the day, they're just still doing wrestling and it doesn't impress me that much. It's fine. You know, it is, it is that era fighting. The guy with the knife who's over with Tracy, he decides to come help out his buddy because, you know, do something. And he comes over and they kind of smack each other around a little bit. And then James Bond reaches down and he picks up this boat oar. And then the henchman has a boat anchor in his hand. And in the nautical version of rock, paper, scissors, it's oar, anchor, eye patch. Eye patch beats oar, oar beats anchor, which is what Bond does here. And anchor beats eye patch. That's pretty good. But what I really like here is when the henchman assigned to Tracy sees that the other henchman is in trouble. Uh-huh. And he's like, oh, fuck, I got to go help out my buddy and leaves Tracy. Tracy takes one look at the situation and is like, yoink, and then fucking hauls ass to Bond's car. Yeah, steals his car and takes off because, Bo, she is a crazy person. Yeah, but again, I get this. Like, some, she's just trying to kill herself like a, a normal person confronted with, you know, the horrors of modern life. And this guy comes out of nowhere, grabs her, drags her back onto the beach, then gets attacked by people. Mm-hmm. And so she is just like, I gotta get the fuck out of here and then commit suicide like a normal person elsewhere where I can get some peace and quiet <laughs> somewhere away from the prying eyes of goons and the people who fight them. Yeah, so Bond ends up like knocking these guys out and he watches as Tracy drives his car to her car. <laughs> right. She's crazy. She's not going to commit Grand Theft Auto. She's just borrowing it for a couple hundred yards. She gets in her car and then drives off. And then he says... This never happened to the other guy. I love this joke because it's playing fan service as, and he breaks the fourth wall. He looks in the camera when he says this and it's like, look, I'm not Connery. You know, I'm not Connery. We're just going to have some fun. Sit back and enjoy the ride. So I asked you this last week, or I think I just kind of asserted this without Mm -hmm. really knowing, (laughs) which is, I was like, no, all these bonds are just people who assume that name when they get named 007. Uh And so then I did some research because you were like, I don't think so. And I was like, how could it not be? While that storm was brewing, that Twitter feud was happening. Uh, So I went and did some research. And here's the interesting thing is that nothing had ever been said one way or the other. In one of the Sam Mendes movies, they were going to assemble all of the old Bonds. So that there was basically a James Bond retirement home where you would find Connery and Brosnan and, you know, everybody but Daniel Craig. That would have been so sad. And Connery rightfully was like, I'm not going to do that. I'm old as Jesus. Just one side of me and people will fucking lose their shit. Could you imagine the staff that works there? It's got to be all men. I mean, there's no woman that's going to work there for more than like three hours. (laughs) Just because of the sexual, uh, rampant sexual assault. Like that place would get me too'd out of existence as soon as... (laughs) As soon as they were like, have you heard about the James Bond retirement home? That place is nothing but grab them by the pussy. <laughs> so, so anyway, that was on paper, though. Uh, there was some character, because uh, I don't know that I ever saw that movie. It was like an old, retired 
secret agent, like an old MI6 guy. And that was supposed to be Connery. And then there were going to be the other Bonds. But because Connery was out, they were like, well, if Connery's out, we're not going to fucking do it. And there is a later scene with Daniel Craig in some shed where like the Aston Martin is there and some other stuff is there that suggests that this is in fact the same Bond throughout all of these movies. And so the Bond, like Lazenby is James Bond in the same way that like they're they're one character which is a thing that still doesn't quite make sense to me but uh, th- apparently that is the canon of this series they're just making movies it's just the character and there's the blowfelds all look different there is no continuity because they were cranking this shit out the way they made those friday the 13th if they could have made one of these every six months they would have it's they're just they're making money they don't care where you like that the gag of like cracky this never happened to the other guy i was like all right like i i don't want you to acknowledge it if it's the same character it's the same character or I want you to be that character. I got a question for you real quick. Before we leave the beach, who are these henchmen and why were they there? You got me, man. Apparently they were just freelance henchmen that were like, hey, we're going to spar with Bond. Just some land-loving pirates looking for a couple of people to mug. Hey, look at her. She's in that Versace dress that Jennifer Lopez wore to the Oscars and he's in a tux. You know they got to have at least a couple hundred bucks between the two of them. I mean, there's no mention of it later. And and again, it's a, one, one of the many reasons that the front end of this movie is almost entirely disposable. Let's talk about the opening credits. Oh, God. Look at these nipples, Chad. Holy shit, the nipples on these silhouettes. Now, here's one thing that does get better over the Bond films, the opening credits, because the silhouettes of these women, they are not the sculpted bodybuilding models of present day. They look just kind of like normal people. And by normal people, I mean 60s strippers who are cool with getting naked and letting filmmakers shoot them in their natural state. Yeah, uh, you know, it was a different time. Uh, It was when people weren't as ashamed of their bodies. And during the opening, we are treated to images from every preceding Bond movie. We see Ursula Andres in there, and there's Dr. No and Pussy Galore, and there's Goldfinger. We see some car crashes that were in From Russia with Love, and we see Emilio Largo from Thunderball, and there are the ninjas from You Only Live Twice. Everything's in there except Sean Connery, because again, they're really trying to glue together the original franchise with this new interpretation of James Bond. Yeah, but here's why it's all cheap. First of all... No lyrics with the music. What the fuck are we even doing here? I came for a song. Yeah. I want a goddamn James Bond song when the credits play. And I don't get that. You're giving me an instrumental. You can go right to hell. Well, because the problem is that Louis Armstrong does the song and you can't have skinny, big bushed, somewhat wiry women with very large nipples floating around to we got all the time and the warrior right which isn't even the title of the movie like again this is all a disaster right from the jump and for me as a viewer i'm just like first of all (laughs) you're showing me clips of other movies like what is this a clip show at least with goldfinger it was like hey here's stuff that's gonna happen in the movie you're about to see whereas with this one it's just like oh here's some shit from some other movies that we had laying around on the cutting room floor (laughs) by the way nobody made up any lyrics to on her majesty's secret service but you know louis arm Strong's going to come by later and sing a song. That's almost as good, right? And you're like, no, it's not. This is not how I expect any James Bond movie to begin. Dude, they're trying things out. They brought in the haunted Halloween James Bond theme. He dropped to a knee. You know what? Maybe this would have been, you know what? The test audiences would have said, this is fantastic. We love seeing <laughs> drug addict strippers at the opening of our James Bond movie and, and no a pop song. I was genuinely surprised to be happy to see the nipple models back after all the clip show ended. 
But I was like, all right, finally, we're back to our nipple models and we're done. I made the mistake of watching a more modern Bond film after doing my notes on this stuff. And it was like, this this feels like a high school production of a James Bond movie. (laughs) (laughs) so the movie picks back up and we see james bond entering a fancy hotel where he sees tracy's red convertible parked outside and bond asks the concierge he's like hi who owns that car and he's like oh that belongs to contessa Teresa servators of the videos she's crazy she always taking too many pills we always have to call the ambulance and and james bond's like ah she sounds just my type so bond goes inside and he's escorted to his room which is this big fancy it almost looks like a house because they had a cancellation and it's got hardwood floors and there are these brown stucco walls. It's got arched doorways. There's gold framed everything, mirrors, oil paintings. There is an outdoor deck with a full-size queen bed on it. The deck is larger than most apartments I ever lived in. And Bond sees all this and he's like, ah, this will do nicely. And so James Bond heads down to the casino. Before we go to the casino, Uh one little note from the concierge here when he's like, also Mr. Bond, we will offer you our special services which in my mind is like hey you can get rid of a dead hooker or two right they're like well of course mr bond we heard you were coming (laughs) we have cars at the ready standing by to dispose of any bodies that you may produce on your visit how many bottles of bleach you got downstairs whatever the number is order more you know what we could do is we could tie them to the giant spiders from where i live you know london me james bond we cut to Bond heading down to the casino, which has purple wallpaper and statuary that is quite racially insensitive by modern standards. Moving along. <laughs> oh, wait, we'll get there. <laughs> Because he's James Bond, he's turning the heads of women left and right. There's a couple of interested fellas that are also raising an eyebrow. And there's a bunch of stuffed shirts and they're playing Baccarat. And I have no idea how to play Baccarat. I don't don't understand how craps works. Poker confuses me. How did you know that's what they were playing? They never say it. I read, Bo. I read. I had a thing in my notes that was like, I don't under... It looks like they're playing blackjack, but no one will ever say what game they're playing. And I don't understand what's happening. It's because you're an ignorant American. American. This is for an international audience. They're playing Baccarat. It's kind of like Blackjack, which is a little bit like pick a number or which hand, you know, like that casino that Cousin Eddie went to. Yeah, he's our gold standard. But but I really do. Like, I think one of the biggest problems this movie has is not explaining itself very well. And this is one of those moments where I spent way too much time in this scene trying to figure out what the fuck game they were playing. Yeah, but that would be like if you watched Hoosiers and you had never seen anyone play basketball and you're just like, I don't get the ending of it. The, the ball has to go through the hoop or the score hole as i heard bo call it on a podcast a few episodes back but that whole movie is here's how you play basketball no that is the entire movie it's not like you're watching the the grand championship of whack bat and you're like this doesn't make any sense at all i mean maybe you're right maybe i am just ignorant but i was like i don't understand what's happening here and it look you got the gist of it cards are flipping over money's changing hands okay and then a woman rolls up with big cleavage hanging out but we can't see her face because the chandelier's hanging down. It's Tracy. And the mystery woman says, I'll gamble irresponsibly on a game that very few people understand, especially Bo <laughs> yeah. Ransdell, who hosts the podcast with his buddy for many, many years. And she bends over and we see that it's Tracy. And she says, mm, I'll take another card and give me another card and give me another card. And it's like, really? You know, you're on 20. You know, do you want another card? And I, this is when I was pretending back rack was blackjack. And then Tracy immediately loses and she turns to the pit boss who is this like time traveling Bruno Kirby. And she's like, uh, yeah, about the 5,000 I just lost. 
Um, I don't have any money to pay that gambling debt. So I guess you're going to have to have some of your men take me out back and beat me to death. Do you guys do that sort of thing here in this casino? Joe Pesci just takes her back to her room and is like left or right. (laughs) Bond steps in and he says, hi, I totally forgot that we're partners tonight. I got the money, my dear. How foolish of me. And so Bond tosses the money to pay her gambling debt, thus saving Tracy twice since he first saw her. And again, I really like this scene because Lazenby's actions here seem to be steeped more in chivalry as compared to Connery that was more lecher. Yes, I will agree that the character of Bond in this is more of a hero than he was in Goldfinger. Oh yeah. He seems to try to want to do the right thing until he gets to Switzerland. And then and then it becomes a very different situation. I do think that this scene is kind of fun. I like Diana Rigg being like, yeah, I don't have any money. Madame, madame, what, what do you mean you don't have any money? You just place yeah. the bet for 5,000 francs or Cougarans or Bat, whatever country we are in, I'm not even sure what accent I'm using. I'm really flying by the seat of my pants right now. You, did you know when you placed the bet that you had no money? Oh, I knew that much. I just thought I might win. <laughs> I also like the fact that Bond here is like, hey, I like a good grift. This Sheila's with me. Bond follows Tracy over to this cocktail table and he orders some Dom Perignon 53. And Tracy, who does not say thank you, by the way, but instead she's like, why do you keep persisting rescuing me, Mr. Bond? And then Bond says, it's becoming a habit. Tracy, look, it's <laughs> next time you need to play it safe and stick on five or 20 or whatever you had in your cards. And Tracy says, people who stay alive play it safe. Hey, why don't we go bungee jump off the roof without any bungee cords? You want to play Russian roulette, James? I've got six bullets. Let's use them all. I'll take one out to start. Here's another one of my favorite games. It's called Drink This. <laughs> and then she's like, well, Mr. Bond, I guess we've come to an arrangement where you're going to fuck me. I hope you have enough STDs that you can rot me from the inside out. I'm trying to get off this space rock. Maybe it's just my love of goth girls, but I'm really into it. Bond orders some champagne to the room that he's eventually going to bed this woman with. He's definitely thinking there's going to be some tag team autoerotic asphyxiation. Right. He's like, this is the best of all worlds. So what if I kill her? She wants it. Look here. Shayla, I need you to I need you to do me a favor. I need you to sign this contract. Kind of a consent form, okay? It's gonna release me of any liability. Sign here, 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 initial here, initial here. I'm gonna run downstairs. The concierge, he's also a notary. This is all gonna be ship shape tip top, okay? When I come back up, have your knickers down and we're gonna have ourselves a rocking good time, okay? Two questions. Do you know my friend Dink? And also, do you know that I also have a license to choke? Bond goes into her room and he's immediately met by Che Che, who's this very large black man. And Bond and Che Che, they just beat the shit out of each other and they destroy her hotel room. This is like watching Clouseau and Cato duke it out. And again, it's Lazenby doing all of his stunts. The camera shows his face and he is just wildly slinging punches. And I loved every minute of it. Yeah. And then after they get done wrestling on the way out, Bond eats uh, some caviar. Mm -hmm. and it's like crikey that's from the caspian sea because i'm elegant like james bond and then he goes back to his room where he's got monogram golf clubs aren't you a spy shouldn't you kind of keep your name on the down low (laughs) ding 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 everyone in the casino i'm james bond super spy and this is also the point in the movie where i became obsessed with the thing on uh, george lazenby's face and his face in general because we get some good close-ups here a couple of my notes he's got a cartoon face like if you just made a face out of clay 
play, but you stop before you finished with all the the like super fine detail. Kind of like that. See, I disagree. I think he's dreamy. He looks very Australian. He's a very like Lego shaped kind of guy. <laughs> Dude, when he goes in his room and he takes off his tuxedo jacket, you get to see the predecessor to the Seinfeld puffy shirt. Oh my God, man. Like there's a lot of puffy shirts in this. <laughs> it's not since Dracula AD 72 have, has there been this kind of flourish in the uh, the centerpiece of a shirt. But that's one of the things that I love about James Bond movies is that they capture so much of the essence of the time in which they're made. Like the fashion of this movie is kind of this, you know, swinging 60s hippie dippy era as compared to the predecessor, which was this plastic, fantastic Madison Avenue buttoned up Mad Men era style of clothing. You can get that in Godzilla versus the Sea Monster, too. <laughs> it's just a different milieu. Now, in those movies, Bo, yes. is this the same Godzilla in every movie, or is it a different Godzilla that they just passed the moniker of Godzilla and his monster powers? Oh, Chad, I'm so glad you asked me this question. For the first three series, <laughs> that's all the same Godzilla. Now, the Godzilla that you and I probably... <laughs> Showa series of Godzilla that started kind of around like Godzilla. Matthew Broderick. And then, of course, there was uh, Shin Godzilla, which is an offshoot and is actually not the Godzilla that we think of from the original 50s Godzilla, but is, in fact, an entire reimagining. Yeah, well, Bond takes off his jacket and his shoulder holster with his gun. And while he's admiring himself in the mirror, you're looking at those good looks from Australia, a hand sneaks up and steals the gun from his holster. And Bond turns around and it's Tracy. And she's wearing this checkered blue bathrobe with her breast comfortably nestled in a bra and hanging out on full display display and bond says you're full of surprises tracy and tracy says ah, you have no idea mr bond i have surprises that you've never even imagined have you ever had a dead golden retriever delivered to your mailbox over the course of five days <laughs> you will and you'll have no idea <laughs> because poof i just put a spell on you and you won't remember anything and bond says ah give me that gun you twit and she says what if i kill you for a thrill and he's like look i can think of something more sociable to do you know we could have six. And then Bond, gra he grabs her wrist and snaps the gun from her hand. <laughs> and he's like, hey, look, stop playing games. All right. Who was that man in your room who tried to beat the bloody hell out of me? And Tracy says, ah, you're hurting me. I like it. I like it when you hurt me. Hurt me more, daddy. Hurt me more because I'm a bad girl. <laughs> and then Bond straight up bitch slaps her across the face. And it is shocking. I mean, I don't know how shocked I was. This character has been hitting women from jump in this movie. Not in this movie. This is our new Bond. You're like, he smacked as soon as he pulled her out of the water it was the, the third thing he ever did in her presence not, was hit was, her in the face that wasn't a hit officer he was just tapping my face and <laughs> these bruises I just I fell down the stairs there's nothing wrong <laughs> cracky officer she wasn't even awake when I hit her that's not even a crime <laughs> so bond is like hey how about you get dressed and she's like look james whatever else i may be i'm not a liar i don't know who that man was he puts his gun away in the nightstand while the guy that he fought earlier what's his name yeah che che he, he's outside like waiting to beat him up again but then bond says i look tracy you're pretty extraordinary tracy says i'm emotionally disconnected from the rest of the world and bond sits down and he holds tracy's hand and then he kind of woos tracy with some pillow talk and bond says i think you're 
having trouble. And Tracy says, I pay my debts. Okay, let's just start kissing. And then the next morning, Bond wakes up and Tracy's gone. And Che Che, he's nowhere to be seen. And so Bond calls room service and they say, Mr. Bond, uh, Tracy checked out a few minutes ago. So Bond opens up the drawer where he left his gun. And now his gun is gone. Uh Uh-oh. But the money that he paid for her gambling debt is now there. So they're paid in full, except for the fact that she stole his gun. I felt like the gun was like, hey, that's kind of the tip for me fucking. No, no, That's the 10% on top. Really? I would have called room service like, hello, room service? I got a question for you. Did you hear a a call backfire? Maybe one good loud time out in the back alleyway? Yeah, you might want to go get some of that bleach you got a little bit earlier. You're going to have a real cleanup on your hands. Yeah, you're gonna see you're gonna see some Tracy splattered all over the wall and definitely on a dampster. And so Bond uh, is checking out with his golf clubs after, and is confronted by this guy who's got some bad skin, who nods to a partner uh, in the lobby of this joint, who's hiding a gun behind a newspaper. Is it the dudes from the beach? Maybe. I think it's the henchman from the beach. Okay, uh, if you say so. And then they lead him to a car outside, and the dude from the night before, Che Che, holds a a knife to Bond's liver, and his lines are, and I'm like, well done, Bond series, two minorities, two mutes. Is his name just Black Oddjob? I didn't realize he had a name, Che Che, but he he might as well. And so they take him to the factory in GTA 5 where you plot all the heists, and as he's led through the back hallways of that, right before they take him to like the lair of whomever has sent for him, Bond strikes. In a series of crash zooms, he, he punches and he kicks dudes, and then rolls into this room with a knife stolen from Black Oddjob, or Che Che, and then shuts the door behind him so they can't get in. He is now poised with this dude behind a desk holding a knife ready to throw. Before we move on with the movie, I want to go back about 18 seconds. Did you like that David Lynch moment when they went through the tunnels and there was a little person in a janitor's costume, like mopping the floor, whistling the theme to Goldfinger? (laughs) Was he whistling the theme to Goldfinger? He was. I love this movie. Let's get back to the office of our mystery man. Bond comes in after doing his judo chop and his hi-ya to get away from his captors. And here we meet Draco, who says, Don't kill me, Mr. Bond, until we have a drink. After that, I'll give you another chance to kill me. And then I'll be a little bit drunk, you'll be a little bit drunk, and it'll be a fair fight, okay? It's five o'clock somewhere. Am I right, Mr. Bond? (laughs) Come on in. And then Bond whips the knife over at Draco, and Bond either wildly misses Draco, or he is spot on on hitting this wooden calendar that's placed on a book of shelves behind him. And then Draco does a double take when looking at the knife that Bond stuck into the calendar which by the way it only shows two weeks at a time it's a very weird calendar but he hits the 14th of the month of uh-huh. you know november or whatever it is draco is like hey you missed a it's like today's the third did you hit the 14th you're a day off mr bond and james bond is like no way i'm just superstitious you know it's like not walking under a drop bear when it's got the mincies <laughs> Draco looks amazing. When we first meet him, he's playing chess with his secretary slash assistant. Her name is Olympe. And Draco is smoking a cigarette from this amber cigarette holder. He's wearing a three-piece suit. He's got a red carnation on his lapel. He has got this amazing thick black hair, gray temples, widow's peak, and a pencil-thin mustache that would make John Waters green with envy. It's fantastic. I also like when Olympe gets up to get him drinks. Mm -hmm. And he's like... Oh, she's a good at the chess too. Almost like a people. Just in case you forgot that this movie at its root, this whole series at art is deeply, <laughs> deeply misogynistic. And then the, when Olympe comes back with their drinks, Bond says, Hey, 
Don't you normally drink brandy? I know that kind of thing. Because I'm like James Bond. In fact, I am James Bond. And <laughs> and Draco is like, yes, what else do you know about me, Mr. Bond? I know that you run one of the biggest crime syndicates in the world, but the organization Spectre is even bigger than yours, and they operate worldwide. And you're involved in construction, in trash collection, money laundering, cement shoemaking, rat killing, and all other forms of legitimate business, such as drug dealing and prostitution. Draco is like, yes, and also... Some legitimate stuff in there too, but you know, you get the, the gist. But hey, I got the proposition for you. What if uh, you know my daughter uh, Tracy, right? She tried to kill herself. It was quite a mess. But if uh, you wouldn't mind, uh, Mr. Bond, what if you know you fuck her into submission, huh? You, you fuck her so good she agreed to marry you because she's so crazy with how she jet sets around and gets venereal diseases and is really <laughs> embarrassing to my family. What does she need is a man to dominate her, to make a lover to her, uh, so that she'll do whatever she tell him. Draco is proposing that James Bond have sex with his daughter to the point where she'll just fall in love with him. This is akin to James Bond fucking pussy galore so well. She changed her moral philosophy and turned state's evidence in the last episode. They got wind of that and are like, he got the, the magic of dick. Maybe he's kind of like Mark McKinney in Kids in the Hall when he listened to all of his answering machine messages from the women thanking him for the sex. And then he pulled his pants out. A giant glow just came yeah. emanating out of his, his underwear. Maybe he's like that. It's got to be fucking legendary because Draco ends up saying like, hey, if you can get her to marry you, I'll give you a million pounds. I don't know. I'm a confirmed bachelor. Not in that way. I just like to travel around the world, you know, and stick my dick in as many holes as a Sheila will let me. And Draco actually says to him, hey, why don't you uh, just uh, try it out, you know? See what that happens. Bond figures out, hey, well, you know, maybe I can use this to my benefit. And Bond goes, sorry, Draco, you want me to date your broken clock of a data? Why don't you tell me where I can find Aunt Stavro Blofeld? And Draco says, I don't know, but I could tell maybe my uh, future son-in-law. A winker, a winker. Look, next week is my birthday. And Crazy Tracy, she always come back to see me, okay? If you propose it to her and maybe get married and bear me a grandchild between the now and the then, I'll tell you where you can find a blowfell. And Bond is like, his like coy rejoinder here is like, let me sleep on it, eh? Like I'm gonna fuck your daughter, huh? And... <laughs> And they share a big laugh about how they're gaslighting Tracy and scheming <laughs> against her. This is fucking horrifying. <laughs> if she wasn't mentally unstable, she would really be offended by this, Bo. Right? This is the point where I'm like, well, Bond immediately ceases being a hero and is just the shithead from Taming of the Shrew. Mm, yes and no, but yes. That's the charm of James Bond. He's smacking women and just doing the worst things ever. And you still love him. Yeah, I guess on paper that's how it would work out. <laughs> Let's cut to MI6 headquarters where James Bond enters, tossing his hat onto the rack, and Money Penny greets Bond with this excited banter. And Bond sneaks up behind Money Penny and she says, Same old James. And then he kisses her on the neck and she says, Ooh, only more so. And again, I really like this moment in the film because again, it's acknowledging that he's not Sean Connery and we're just sort of smoothing over some rough edges by tying together some of the beats that you see in the first five films with this movie and again saying look Money Penny's cool with him being James Bond
on, everybody in the audience just shut up. Get over it. Not since the introduction of Mutt in the Indiana Jones series has a character been like, all every character around him just being like, huh, this guy seems pretty good. How dare you compare George Lazenby's James Bond to Mutt from Indiana Jones? I think Shia LaBeouf is a better actor. We'll never really know because our man only really made one movie that counts. But also I think the implication is with the more so is it's like, oh, you're just like James Bond, only with a bigger dick. Well, yeah, we just talked about it. If you pull his pants down, it glows lights up to heaven. (laughs) He goes into M's office and M says, I'm relieving you from Operation Bedlam. You've had two years to find Blofeld and you got Jack Squat Bond dismissed. So Bond's really upset. But he's like, you've had two years. Like the way he puts it is, we gave you a license to kill for a reason. Doesn't do you much good if you can't find somebody to fucking kill, does it? Look, I'm not like the last guy. He killed 22 people in a day, so I had, all right? I pick and I choose. By the way, did anybody deliver the paw of a golden retriever here today? I'm kind of expecting a package. He walks out of there. He's pissed off that he's being taken off the case because Blofeld is kind of his arch nemesis, kind of, sort of. Which they don't really, again, they don't do a great job of explaining. And I don't, because I don't have a a giant background with these movies, I know the name Blofeld, Uh but I don't really know why he's a threat. He's just the head honcho for Spectre and more than likely will fill in a lot of those gaps a few episodes down the road. Probably so, but again, as a just as a viewer that is a casual viewer of this series mm-hmm. i think this movie sits on who blofeld is and why he is a threat for way too long they don't get into that until like the second hour of the film and again as a viewer i'm just like so you're killing blofeld but blofeld was in at least three if not four of the other Sean Connery movies to some degree or another. He wasn't played by Telly Savalas, but his character has has been mentioned as the head of Spectre. Even if you don't know what what Spectre is or Blofeld, it, look, it's your bad guy. You've been looking for the bad guy. You had two years. You ain't got shit. You're off the case, Bob. But at least with Goldfinger, it was like, Goldfinger is a metallurgist who is up to no good, and we need you to go check him out. It all unfolds. It shows up in Act 2. It's It's a novel. Okay. He's pissed off and he leaves and he stops at Money Penny's desk and he says, Money Penny, take a memo. Sir, I hereby render my resignation forthwith, etc., etc., from Her Majesty's Secret Service. Yours truly, etc., etc., James Bond. Door slammed. Bond leaves the office. Strike that, reverse it. My note here is, if the rest of this movie is him getting drunk and looking for a new job, but he can't find one, and then he falls in love with an illiterate waitress who teaches him how to love while he teaches her how to read, this will be the best Bond movie for sure. They would have changed the name to Frankie and Janny. <laughs> Frankie and Jimmy. <laughs> Now, I want to say, in watching this movie for the very first time, I thought that he really quit and that that was going to be the movie of like him leaving, going to find Blofeld, and that because of his actions, he would be brought back into MI6. Which would be a better movie, yes. Bond goes to his office to clean out his desk, and the movie takes another stroll down memory lane as he pulls out Honey Rider's knife from Dr. No, and we see Red's watch slash garrote that he strangled people with, and from Russia with love, and there's that breathing device from Thunderball and there's all these musical cues from the other movies just to really hammer home that this is still James Bond if you came in and missed the opening credits 
this is the James Bond from the other movies. He just looks totally different. It's a little heavy handed, but it also kind of reminded me of Uncharted 4, where Nathan Drake wanders through a room and he sees all of the mementos from his adventures. So I was okay with it. Yeah, and honestly, a lot of that was totally lost on me. I just thought it was kind of random shit. I didn't remember the Dr. No thing. It's just playing fan service. It's like when people saw those Marvel movies and they would hold up the Krakaton device from issue 12, 17. Like, hey, that's that's the Krakaton device. That's probably going to come into play when the Guardians get back together with She-Hulk. Now you're talking, Chad. Iron Man, he's holding up. Iron, Iron Man's holding up Captain America's shield. He couldn't do it. That is my shit. Like, that is why when it's I watch the these. It's the same thing. It, it, it is the same thing, but it's different enough that it's like, for whatever reason, I care about that stuff, and I don't give it any shits about this. James Bond's phone rings. Yeah. And he's called back into M's office. Bond walks in, and M, without even looking up, he says, request granted. And Bond leaves, and as an audience member, you're thinking, holy shit, he's no longer a secret agent. And then he saddles up next to Money Penny and he says, never a moment of regret. And then Money Penny says, read it, Bond. And he's like, hmm, two weeks leave. And Money Penny says, you didn't really want to resign, did you? I really liked this head fake because I was being suckered that he was going to quit and was gone. And I like that Money Penny kind of covered his ass. Like, look, you were pissed off. He's pissed off. I keep shit together here at MI6. Yeah, I do like this moment where you get Bond saying, Money Penny, what would I ever do without you? Also, we'll never have sex. And then as soon as he leaves, M buzzes her and is like, yes, indeed. What would I do without you, Money Penny? <laughs> it is a nice moment where Money Penny gets a, a little bit of her day in the sun that yeah. she is she is somehow important to this organization which yeah. you know is nice to see Again, I really enjoy the relationship between James Bond and Money Penny. Throughout all of the incarnations of this Money Penny and other Money Pennies, it's just it's playful and it's cheeky, and I think it really helps to provide depth to the character. Let's cut to the countryside of Portugal, Spain, and Tracy is driving her convertible to a miniature bullfighting arena where her father Draco is having his birthday party, and it's a real grand affair. And Bo, I have no patience for adults having birthday parties, let alone people that throw birthday birthday parties for themselves mm -hmm. i agree with that i also think that bullfighting is a terrible thing and cruel to animals so all of this is terrible you send me an invitation to go to a bullfight or you send me an invitation to go to marianne's 48th birthday party i'm going to the bullfight at this point if somebody even texts me and is like happy birthday i'm like what the how do you have time for this <laughs> tracy shows up at the bullfighting arena and she is dressed as a bullfighter yeah i think that she heard that this was a bullfight themed party and took it literally because Bo, after all she's a crazy person that she thought she might have to get involved i thought i was gonna have to stab it at the end i read all of the sun also rises last night just in case in fact you know what i did i stayed up all night and i typed the entire novel on a typewriter to see what it was like to feel the words pour out of my fingertips and also i have all of my knives and my sabers in the trunk of my car if we need them <laughs> i like this move where and this is why i like diana rigg and tracy as a character so much this movie where Draco is like, well, look who happens to be here, Tracy. It's my old friend, James Bond. And she's like, I know who he is. And James Bond is like, 
Hey, it's nice to see you again. Hey, remember when we had sex? We should do that again. By the way, I heard you said you got a truck full of knives. Is my gun in there? I kind of need to turn it back in because I think I might get fired here in a couple of weeks. They made me put down a sea turtle as a deposit. When Bond is standing next to Draco, the two of them are both wearing ascots. Mm. And it is awesome. I had not seen this many ascots since Don Knotts saddled up next to Fred Jones in that episode. Episode, the spooky fog as part of the new scooby-doo movies <laughs> yeah it's a it's a style that i really enjoy do you remember when those scooby-doo movies had all of those like 1950s movie stars mm-hmm. that showed up to tag team with mystery inc to solve some crimes in the 80s and it was like laurel and hardy and phyllis diller and sandy duncan was in there and mm-hmm. jerry reed jonathan winters don adams that's what the kids really wanted to see Bo. i was plenty happy to see jerry reed show up and solve mysteries <laughs> Mama Cass herself showed up in an episode called The Haunted Candy Factory, and the caricature that they drew of her was so unflattering. As opposed to what? She looks like Grimace with lipstick. She's a woman who famously died for like her crazy weight fluctuation. She did not die from choking on a ham sandwich, as Austin right. Powers would want us to believe. She actually <laughs> died of heart failure in her sleep in a London apartment at age 32. And both four years after her death, the Who's drummer, Keith Moon, he died in that same room at age 32. Choking to death on a ham sandwich. Hmm. Actually, it was a drug overdose. Very tragic. <laughs> yeah. Well, but it was heroin injected into a ham sandwich. So <laughs> What are we talking about? Oh, wait. So it, when Tracy shows up. She just storms off. She's like, I'm out of here. It's a real like, fuck you two assholes. Like, you two look like you're up to something. And I got no time for it. And th- and that's where I'm on board. Yeah, I'm going to go stick fondue forks into electrical outlets and see what happens. <laughs> I'm just going to go cut my thighs like I'm used to. Listen to a, a little Machines of Loving Grace and you guys can go fuck yourselves how about that draco says she likes you bond i can tell i can see it go chase her after her go chase her and then bond's like yeah i don't think so i'm gonna wait a little bit until she gets a couple of drinks in her that's how i play i call it marinating <laughs> and then olympe uh, uh draco's se- secretary and tracy are kind of chit-chatting and and olympe is in on this whole scam uh-huh. where she's like <laughs> oh i'm a part of this d- grand illusion too she watches while this bull gets seized by some kind of flower stick there's a real weird line here that olympe says uh you know, there are many things that you don't know about Mr. Bond. And then Olympe says, it would be interesting to attend a night school, perhaps. Is she giving us insight into her hopes and dreams? Or is she trying to plant some seed into Tracy's cuckoo noggin to try to get her to learn a trade? No, she is saying you should fuck Bond more. Like, your night school education is fucking him to see if maybe he's okay. Boy, you read a whole lot into that. I thought she was telling her to go to electrician school or plumbing school or... No, instead, Tracy is... Is like, you and my father are up to something. Well, look, whatever your father has arranged, I'm sure that he loves you. I mean, he's not arranging anything. It's not the marriage. It's not the carriage. It's not the baby carriage. I think you're pregnant. Wait, I said too much. Look, uh, here's some school brochures. Uh, you need to go to school at the night. Uh, learn to be a good <laughs> secretary, like me. This is the moment where I realized that this section of the movie is just the Stepford Wives told from the husband's point of view, instead of Catherine Ross's, where they're just like, this Tracy is a real 
real handful. What if we conditioned her in some way to be, you know, more obedient and manageable? Except this one has bullfighting. What did you think about the bullfighting in this? Holy hell, man. This bull knocks over these men dressed up as Christmas elves. It's some real Johnny Knoxville jackass bullfighting stunt work. Yeah, I always root for the bull in any of these situations. Ever ever since one fired a shotgun in its tail at Bugs Bunny, I have been on the side of the bulls. You know what? The Bulls, the bullfighter, in my opinion, the winner here is the audience. Draco, Tracy, Olympe, and Bond, they all take a seat at a table. And Tracy says, what are you doing here, James Bond? And Draco says, we're discussing a business, a deal. I'm going to give him a million dollars and he's going to take a ownership of a, a walking, a talking, a nightmare. <laughs> And Tracy says, what? Are you trying to palm me off on this handsome, tall drink of water? Look, he better be getting something more than cash. Tell James Bond what he wants right now, Dad. Okay? Tell him or I'm going to start pulling fists of my hair out of my head one bloody cup at a time, just like I did in Rio de Janeiro. Tell him. And Draco says, hey, Tracy, Tracy. I'll tell you what he wants to know, okay? Look, Mr. Bond, you want to find a Blofeld, right? He's the head of Inspector. You need to go find a lawyer named Gumbold in Switzerland. That's what you needed to know, okay? Yeah, he, he wanted James Bond to get married so he could tell him the name of a lawyer that maybe talks to Blofeld sometimes. That seems shaky at best. If I were Bond, I'd be like, hey, I think you're trying to snooker me. Gambold? Ah, thanks, Draco. That's just what I needed to know. A lawyer in Switzerland. Off I go. Yeah, and Tracy is like, well, now that you know the name of this lawyer, you can leave me the fuck alone. <laughs> Bye. I'm leaving and I'm never coming back. Never. Never. <laughs> right, yeah, she gets up and fucks off. Again, rightfully, I say her. Like, she has been betrayed by her family at the very least. She is a crazy person, Bo. You say you crazy, I say gaslit. Yeah, I think you have a type. <laughs> you're probably right that's why, why i never married uh so she's at her car uh with her back to him and he comes up behind her and is like i was always told that mistakes should be remedied by friends or lovers by the way is my getting you trunk of your cat i really need a get i'm out 200 dollars at least that was just the security deposit. I gotta pay money back for every round that I don't return. They inventory that stuff. Bullets ain't cheap and they sure ain't free. Plus, I'm sending money home every month to my mom. She had her leg taken off by an oversized cricket that we've got in the Badlands. <laughs> Tracy turns around and this grown woman somehow has like four tears streaming down her cheeks all at once because she's bipolar, suffering from manic depression as well as fits of schizophrenia. And then Bond wipes away her tears and here we get Louis Armstrong singing We got all the time in the world which was the bond song as we mentioned earlier yeah and then we get a montage of bond and tracy dating and they're riding on horseback through the woods and they're going to these elegant parks and strolls on the beach and they're window shopping where we see a fancy ring on a pillow remember that for later and all of this is happening to the velvety raspy voice of satchmo and in this movie the montage it serves purpose in that we get to see these two you know we'll call it dating maybe dare i say falling in love and i think that this was sort of a staple of films in the late 60s which is why you see a similar montage in butch cassidy and the sundance kid where bj thomas sings raindrops keep falling on your head it's thoroughly out of place in that movie but in this film it seems a little more seamless as it relates to the characters the song and the time in which it's it's taking place i'm not really sure i want to see the character of james bond shopping at christmas well that's what's different about this one because he's falling in love he's like crikey she's fucking nuts did you see how many knives she had in her trunk right but as soon as he hits switzerland he's like all bets are off 
Well, he's <laughs> still James Bond. That's the thing. It's like you either be different or you be James Bond, and this movie wants it both ways, and as a result, it's kind of nothing. He's starting to fall in love. He hasn't fallen in love yet. <laughs> yeah, though. all right. All, all right. right. When this all kind of ends up where they just drop him off at work like Draco and Tracy. Yeah, suddenly we're in Switzerland. Yeah, and they're just like, hey, go enjoy your spy stuff, James. And he's like, all right, see you after dinner. He goes into Gumball's office and he does a sneaky spy thing where he waits till the lawyer leaves and then uh, he goes in- into uh, his office, sneaks in. And the guy looks a little like Slugworth from Willy Wonka, which I enjoyed. It's also weird that he speaks English when he talks to the guard out front. I'll be back in one hour. Paging Mr. Herman. <laughs> just going to the candy shop. And also, Bond doesn't hear him say this. Bond just walks over to the office and he's like, hey, it looks like nobody's inside. Time to break in. Which he does. This movie does a fine job in certain scenes of building tension. Yes. This is not one of those scenes where Bond, is, like as he's going to the office, there's the real heart racer where Gumball thinks he has forgotten something outside and then starts to turn around, but then he has it. And then just keeps walking i liked it i thought it was at least something that was marginally suspenseful it's better than watching james bond look at pornography which is about to happen this whole front end you can kind of keep but this sequence in particular is is bad I loved it. So he watches from this ver- the veranda of this office he's broken into as this construction worker slash CIA agent slash MI6 agent or whoever. Yeah, his name's Campbell, which they did a piss poor job of connecting how Campbell knows Bond. Because Campbell's like Bond's secret right-hand man lurking in the shadows there to help him out when he needs help. Once. <laughs> well, it, it, yeah, and then tries to a second time and fails misery. Yeah, he puts a big case in this big bucket attached to a crane. And that crane is then lifted up to Bond on the floor of this veranda and it's like oh great we're gonna get some gadgets what could it be it's a one of your safe cracker slash copy machines it's a nice combo i i mean it makes sense you put a clock in it maybe a coffee maker the tense scene here is bond just plugs this thing into the safe or puts like cups onto the the safe uh-huh. and it and it starts trying to crack the code yeah. so he just sits there and reads a newspaper which turns out to be a playboy yeah the playboy was hidden in the newspaper my dad <laughs> used to pull that move so he starts looking at the centerfold and the biggest tension of this scene is when you see that the the code breaker on the machine is getting closer and closer to solving the code Uh and bond is like hey do i have enough time to crank it before this thing cracks the code maybe i do and then he doesn't and he's like got blue balls for part of the movie is uh the fan read of this also interrupting this tense moment of will he masturbate or will he not there's a scene in the taxi cab where Draco and Tracy are riding around and Draco says, you know, Tracy, some things are best left for the father to decide like uh, what school his daughter should attend or who his daughter should marry or what the color underwear his daughter should wear on her wedding night, which by the way, the answer to these questions are look here if a beauty school from the hit musical Greece and you should marry this James Bond as your husband and on your wedding night, you should wear bright pink panties with the words, you may now bang the bride printed on the front. It's a nice icebreaker if things are a little bit uncomfortable tracy also i'll be in the corner like a the jerry falwell that's a jerry falwell senior he's got a young boy junior i hope he grows up to be just like his dad <laughs> you know just giving it a little a tug <laughs> but keeping my eye on what's happening on the bed you know so before james bond can really get into the girls of the sec pictorial <laughs> 
he makes copies of these papers that he rifles through and then he sends the safe cracking coffee making paper shredding device back into the bucket off it goes and then bond walks out of the law office just as gumbold returns it's all marginally suspenseful thanks mostly to the musical score which the music in james bond movies are top notch yeah and as bond is leaving the office and as gumbold's returning from lunch bond has in his hands the centerfold that he stole from the playboy it is opened up and he's looking at it as he's walking down the hall because he's a pervert yeah looking at porn in public he's the kind of asshole that watches like bondage porn videos on his ipad on planes We cut back to our movie, and James Bond shows up at M's house, and M, turns out he lives in a mansion. M is for mansion. And inside, M is wearing a blazer, and what else, an ascot. And M is adding to his collection of murdered butterflies. Remember when people did that, Bo? Yeah. They would collect butterflies or stamps or coins. Human beings are really weird in the shit that they do. Yeah. (laughs) Look what we're doing. We watch movies, and then explain the entire movie in detail to people who could just go watch the movie on their own. Or we're talking to people who've already seen the movie, and they just want to hear us repeat something that they've already watched. What the hell is wrong with us? I don't blame us. I blame the listeners. <laughs> How dare you, listener? Please don't go. <laughs> yes, I, I, I need your validation. I need your love. It's the only thing I have. Uh, so, while, yeah, while he's at home and, and looking through his lepidopterist collection or whatever. I see you got a small nymphopolychlorus. Or are you just unhappy to see me? Rimshot! And M is just like, oh, Bond. Mm. Yes, so Blofeld is going to meet in person this guy who's going to establish his claim to the title of Count the Who's a Fuck. Bond tells it. I broke into this lawyer's office. Look, I know you told me not to be on the case, but I didn't pay attention. I got inside and I found these letters. Check this out. Wait, that's the Playboy centerfold that I stole and recently used to pleasure myself. Look, here's the letter and it says that Count de Blochamp, which is a French form of Blofeld, he's the bad guy in a movie, sir. He says, look, here's what's going to happen. Blofeld wants to get the title of Count and they need somebody from the London College of Arms to show up and make sure everything's all tippity tip top so i'm gonna pretend to be this guy sir hillary gray and i'm gonna go in and i'm gonna catch blowfield and that's basically gonna be act two and part of act three of a movie and this was another point like i i I, at the risk of beating a dead horse i do those like what do i want out of a spy movie and the dispute over the title of count coming quick on the heels of that tremendous copying paper scene i was like (laughs) let's let's get it moving shall we so bond goes to this university uh 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 to take classes on assault they show him his coat of arms with the motto orbis non sufficit which means no fat chicks actually uh, yeah it's it's the world is not enough which turns out was a uh, a bond movie later Mm -hmm. with a better title song by garbage because at least that one had lyrics we got out the time in the world (laughs) we didn't have enough time to write a decent song for this movie apparently if it's something strange in your neighborhood Who's you gonna call Ghostbusters? <laughs> That's better. <laughs> Purple rain. Purple rain. I got game. He got game. She got game. Holy shit. Louis Armstrong doing the <laughs> Be on the lookout for spirit snipers trying to steal your light. It might feel good. It might sound a little something, but fuck the game if it ain't saying nothing. I got jungle fever. He got jungle fever. So basically, jungle fever. Louis Armstrong does the the music of Spike Lee. Is really what we want here. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm Which for is it. basically Stevie Wonder conjugating sentences. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and and public enemy. Oh shit! Are you kidding me? Dude, uh, I want all of this. But so Bond go. Yeah, when he shows up at this university, and and I still don't understand exactly the whole representative situation of like. So basically, he's got to do. He's got to pose as the guy who would ordinarily do the research. Yep. To establish that Blofeld is part of this French family that awards him the title of Count. Right. I, I don't understand why that's important, other than, I guess, he gets to call himself a Count. Maybe it's because we're Americans. We don't care about that stuff. It's like being no. knighted or something. Yeah, we fought two wars to not give a shit about that. <laughs> and i that's one of the few nationalist American tendencies I, I get behind. Yeah. The ability to not give a shit about the monarchy is one of my favorite things. Well, here, you basically just give yourself uh, your own title. You know, like Sir Mix-a-Lot. <laughs> or Dame Judy Dench. Something stupid like that. <laughs> or Marmaduke. <laughs> Count Chocula. <laughs> Sir Booberry. Burger King. Indeed. So, Sable Basilisk is the name of a job? If you say so. Or it's a name of a person. It's like Somebody is like, that's our assistant, Sable Basilisk. And then later, they say that name again, as if that is the title of a job. But I was like, these are all just Monty Python names at this point. I'm surprised that the Dean's name isn't Reginald Non-Gorilla. The point of this whole thing is like, Bond showed up, he did a whole lot of book learning so that he can pull off this ruse, pretending to be this egghead. And this is the point where they start dubbing his voice. Yeah. All of Lazenby's dialogue as Sir Hillary was dubbed by George Baker, which I think kind of makes the performance feel notably different from Lazenby's portrayal of James Bond, because this is kind of this like nerdy alter ego there's kind of a clark kent quality to it yes but for the sake of this episode it's going to be the same terrible australian accents that we've been doing for the last hour plus a- absolutely so bond says hey we got to get this blowfeld out of switzerland because some of the shit we're gonna do ain't isn't kosher there or something i mean i assume that's why they're trying to get him out of switzerland they never explicitly say but a couple of times in the movie he's like we should go to augsburg that's a little bit later because that's where he's trying to he's trying to root it out why is he trying to get him to augsburg because once he gets to his lair he still tries to get him to augsburg and i was like well isn't the whole point he's just trying to get close enough to kill him i don't think that james bond fully knows that this is blofeld but he thinks that it's blofeld he's trying to figure out is this really blofeld and should i kill him or is he lord harry bottom roth d bluefield who should be the count of who gives a shit Oh, I never got that that his identity as Blofeld was ever in question. No, I think he's been looking. You know what? For the sake of continuity, let's just say that he he's still trying to figure it out. Because otherwise it doesn't make any sense. Right, because he immediately knows it's him. If that's the case, he just bought a gun and shoot him and be like, <laughs> right, movie's over. Right. Right. That's why I, that, that was my own little brand of, of pick six fan fiction is that he's still a little confused whether it's him or not. He got hit on the head with a coconut after he saw him last. It was like, damn it, I've got Blofeld amnesia. So we cut to the Swiss Alps, where we see waiting for Bond is his co-worker Campbell from the construction site earlier. And I don't know why he's there. And I don't know what his purpose is in this movie, as we noted earlier. And also here we get to meet Irma Bunt, who is the inspiration for Frau Farbissena, the founder of the militant wing of the Salvation Army. <laughs> yeah. Scott! 
what? This is where I texted you as I was watching it. I was like, this is 100% Austin Powers. Like, I did not realize how directly it ripped off these movies. If you go back and watch the Connery ones up till this one, it's easily 95% of that first movie. I kind of want to go back and watch that after we do all of these movies, just because I feel like they'll make a lot, that movie will, will mean a lot more to me. Yeah, there's a lot more parody there than just sort of mild inspiration for a, a goofball comedy. This is also James Bond dressed like one of the Von Trapp family. He's Clark Kent, man. Yeah, he looks like he is going to solve a crime at the ski resort. Yeah, I, I love all of this. Irma Bunt says to him, Hello, Sir Henry. I hope that you had good travels. And Bond in this disguise, he says, Not at all. I'm afraid I'm not a very good traveler. I threw up on the train. I threw up out the window of the train. I threw up on some passengers of the train. And I threw up in my shoe. And then I threw that off the train. Do you have another shoe? Looks like this one without vomiting it. Yeah, and she's like, Oh, that is disgusting. Would you like something to eat to fill your stomach again? And he's like... <laughs> No, no, I eat my own sick. Irma Bunt and Bond, they get into this horse-drawn carriage, and they ride off into the picaresque ski village of the Swiss Alps. And George Lazenby, as this genealogist Sir Hilary Egghead, he is this nerdy, bookish alter ego of James Bond in the movie. And I really enjoy this performance, even though all of his dialogue is dubbed over. Campbell hops into a VW bug, and he gives chase. Me, me, me. Feed up your bikes, have front wheel drive, even weight distribution. Me, 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 me. Making them perfect for snow travel. Me, 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 me. Me, me, I'm a running character in the Bond movies too. Me, 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 me. I've shown up more in episodes of Big Six movies. Me, 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 than anybody else. Me, 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 me. me. Not a lot of people know that. Me, 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 I'm, I'm the most frequently appearing character. Me, me. So that's a real surprise to a lot of long-time <laughs> listeners. Me, 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 me. <laughs> Bond and Irma Bunt and Gunter, her assigned henchman. He's the only henchman with a name in this movie, except for Cheche earlier, but we don't see him anymore. So <laughs> they ride up to this platform where a helicopter is waiting and there's just snow everywhere. And they hop inside to make their way off to the secret mountain lair of Blofeld. Yeah. And then Campbell, he pulls up and he's kind of let down. He's there with his car. Me, me, me. Don't expect me to scale that mountain. Me, me, me. I'm not Edmund <laughs> Hillary. Me, 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 me. That's the first person to climb Mount Everest. Me, me, me. Bit of a history buff. Me, 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 me. Pick six movies is entertainment. Me, 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 me. <laughs> As the helicopter flies away, Irma Bunt points out, look down there below, that is avalanche damage. And over there, you can see people skiing. And over here, you can see the bobsled trails, which I will say, it is a nice touch of filmmaking because it's not really out of place that you're seeing all of these sky shots of what's down below. And each of these things has purpose later in our movie, but it doesn't feel heavy handed as she's pointing it out. And also, there is some really nice camera work here. Yes. Just giving you the vista of this and going to this evil lair up in the Alps was the first time in this whole movie where I got kind of like, ooh, this is good. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I started to get kind of excited here. There are three levels. There's the village below. Yes. And then there's the ski resort in the middle and yes. then evil lair up on the top of the mountain. As they're going up, <laughs> Bond says, so what does this guy do exactly? And then Irma says, he researches allergies such as a hay fever or the sickness from the oysters or the inability to eat the meat. And I'm like, wait. Blofeld is studying allergies in his Mountaintop Evil Lair Institute. Mm -hmm, that's right. Look, this place is totally up to no good because when they land, it's completely surrounded by armed guards at every corner of the yeah. building and in between. And Bond rightfully is like, hey, how come there's so many guns if all you're doing is, you know, checking out Jenny Sniffles? 
We have the guns to shoot down the spies from the chemical companies. They want to steal our secrets. The Count wants to do his work to benefit all of humanity by creating a master race. I mean, by helping people across the world eat hamburgers and not snuffle from the sniffles. <laughs> hey, what was that thing you said before about a master race? I was checking out these girls. I was talking about the bobsleds down below. It's the master race that everyone wants to win. <laughs> it is nothing. That seems cricket. All right. Hey, what are we having for dinner? Steak, I hope. <laughs> they take him inside and show him to his room. Because he was a little airsick, they take him to a doctor or something. And then Irma calls up Blofeld and she's like, I've got the guy here. What should we do with him? And then we see Blofeld from behind. He's like, hey, baby, provide him with the usual comforts. So Bond gets taken to his room and Irma Bunt says, you press this button if you need anything. Won't <laughs> you push this button to call the attendant to get out of your room? There are no windows or doors you can open. In case of a fire, make peace with your god. You shall soon come face to melted face with your creator. <laughs> yeah. You want to see God? Let's go see him together. Don't push me, egghead. Blofeld will call for you when he is ready. Yeah, when am I going to meet the director? And when he's ready. Hey! But you can meet me in the Alpine room at seven before dinner. Formal wear is required. Specifically, kilts for the men and sexy outfits for the ladies. Good day, sir. Yeah, and, and like out the window, Bond sees the helicopter takeoff, kind of stranding him in this lair. He gets dressed for dinner, which, as you put it out, is this crazy kilt and fluffy shirt combo uh -huh. where he meets Bunt in the Alpine room. And it is just hot ladies everywhere. It is 12 super sexy ladies that are listed in the credits as the american girl the english girl the chinese girl the german girl the indian girl the israeli girl the scandinavian girl the jamaican girl the irish girl the australian girl nancy and ruby so guess which ones are important <laughs> guess which two he fucks yeah, right. Well, I still say that the Chinese girl is in play. He gives her a reservation. I don't know if she shows up or not. I don't think it's, I think it's him that's showing up. Bud clears his throat and he's like, it him. And it's a real record scratch. And all these women look up, especially Ruby, who is smoking naturally out of a cigarette holder. And she puts on her glasses to get a better look at James Bond, pretending to be Sir Hillary gonna come loudly. <laughs> and Ruby is played by Angela Seclair. Mm -hmm. And at times in this movie, she is the spitting image of Meg Ryan. That is exactly what's in my notes. She is a chubbier British Meg Ryan. I, I think you can scratch the chubby, and I think the British could have just been an accent. If I showed you this clip and told you this was from Tarantino's new film with Meg Ryan in it, you'd believe it. Yeah, she is adorable. Yeah, she's a lot of fun in this role. The server asks Bond what he wants to drink, and Bond looks at him and says, uh, Forsters, I mean, shit, malt whiskey and branch water. And I was like, branch water? What is that? I looked it up and apparently it's water from a stream or a river. I'm not drinking that. Yeah, the, they call that brackish. That's where <laughs> mosquitoes breed. They call it gutter juice. <laughs> yeah, you might as well just drink the liquor off the bar mat. Yeah, I remember as a kid, people were like, hey, let's make snow cream. You take snow and you mix it with sugar and you eat it. And I'm like, what the fuck? Like, do you make Kool-Aid out of rainwater? Hell no. <laughs> yeah. That's disgusting. I'm not eating that. It ain't the apocalypse yet. I mean, I've got the buckets for when it goes down, but until that day comes, baby, I'm filtered water or bust. Ruby, our Meg Ryan lookalike, she's a handful and she's super excited to see a man. <laughs> and more importantly, she's excited about the possibility of seeing a man's penis. 
Venus, sometime soon, preferably in her. And all of these nameless women from around the world, they're about as bright as you would expect them to be in a James Bond movie. And they all inquire into what James Bond does as a genealogist, and they giggle and they look confused as Bond proceeds to bore these women into sedation as they all eat dinner. All right, two things about this. First, a note about the plot, which is that all of these girls are now eating what they were once allergic to. Yes. And like Ruby has a big plate of chicken. Yeah. The other note, here is the most racist shit in this movie, and it is fucking crazy. Okay. So as they're going around like, oh, here's what everyone's eating. It's like the Asian girl eating rice was like, all right. Then they get to the Indian woman eating naan. Okay. And you're like, all right. And then they get to the Jamaican girl eating a fucking banana. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? You can't have a black lady just eating a banana in a movie like this. But when, not, not when you proceed it with like, hey, here is the racial stereotype food of this particular lady. What year was this movie made, Bo? 1969 that doesn't exactly. make it right the civil rights act had passed god damn it <laughs> yeah in some parts of the country yeah you're right but it it was starling where it was like what in the fuck well this was made in a time that wasn't as enlightened as we find ourselves today okay this kind of thing doesn't occur in every single city that you live in now in america <laughs> wait yes it does have you been on the internet not like, much it's basically pornography and toxic racism and poison yeah i i kind of called it quits i i don't google <laughs> nothing anymore whatever i know is just what i know now but anyway so after that crazy moment and and we get back to meg ryan ruby says i used to be allergic to chicken i couldn't eat it if i looked at a chicken i'd throw up but now I can eat chicken whenever I want. Because when I used to eat it, I used to break out all over. You'd be surprised where I broke out. And you're like, your vagina? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> You'd think so. It was my rectum. It was right in my bum. It was on me eyeballs. <laughs> it was right on top of me brain. They did an MRI. And saw that I had boils all over my brain. Ever since then, I think the color purple tastes like poop. We cut to Bond, and he's still rambling on about genealogy and family lineages. And I kind of gave Bond benefit of the doubt that he is completely committed to this alter ego of Dr. Hillary Advanced Degrees. And Bond says, I got a book with lots of pictures in it that you ladies might want to see. It's got a nice collection of centerfolds that I've stolen from law offices and waiting rooms over the years. And Ruby says, I'd love to see your big, thick book in my room. And then Irma Butt jumps in. No! No discussions about room numbers! Verboten! And then... You will give me the book, and I will pass it around to the girls as I see fit. I will take the book, I will look at the pictures, and I will describe them to the girls. Do not worry, I'm very descriptive. <laughs> My use of adverbs is spare but important. If you do not want that, girls, I will look at the pictures, and using crayons, I will draw the pictures perfectly and give you the drawings. If only we had one of the cases that was both a code breaker and a copy machine and clock and microwave oven heats up sandwiches in no time at all. All the hot chocolate it produces so fast. But you have me talking poetic. About this time, Ruby goes under the table with a tube of lipstick and she writes on Bond's thigh her room number, which is eight. Mm -hmm. 
And I didn't mention this in the intro. In the documentary Becoming Bond, Lazenby tells a story that the production crew strapped like a big kielbasa to his thigh. And when she reached up under there, she grabbed hold of it like it was his dick. I tell you this story because it's not so much that the movie is misogynistic. The actual set of the people in it and the people working on the film were misogynistic as well. I felt like that was a given. I mean, but it's nice to hear that confirmed. You know, it's nice to know you're right. Irma Butt looks over at Bond and says, are you feeling okay, Sir Hillary? I'm asking because you threw up in your shoe earlier today. Oh, crikey. I got a slight stiffness coming on. You know, in me donga. (laughs) I think it's due to the altitude. I think it's affecting me jangles. I think it's that and also the fact that Ruby over here is rubbing the inside of me thigh. She's giving a little tweak to my beacon rubs. You know what I mean? It's like she's trying to put me truck in reverse. It's like she's trying to birth a hog. She reached down there and gave it a tug. At first I didn't mind it, but you know, after a while, hey, I'm wearing a man's skirt after all. I'm from Australia. I've never seen anything like this. I mean, London, James Bond, that's me. And then they, they they summon him to an elevator and he is taken down to an ice lair. It's the Batcave, man. Now we got something. Only an hour in, I'm starting to get interested in this movie. He's led to this lab where Blofeld appears after going through some kind of decontamination chamber from the lab. And it's Telly Savalas. Yeah. TV's lollipop loving detective Kojak. They're basically just talking about this claim to the Count de, de Beauchamp stuff. And Hey there, baby. I'm a count. I got no earlobes. I got the papers to prove it. I'm a real count. Look at me. You look at me and you think one word. What? Bald. No, you think count. All right. Do me a favor. Sign that document and be on your merry way, Sir Hillary. All right. Say, what kind of woman's name is Hillary anyway? And Bonnie's like, hey, before we put a dot on this I and a cross on that T, we're going to need to go to Augsburg. He's like, that's the hometown of the Blowchamps. And we're going to have records and interest and all kinds of things. Doesn't that sound good by you? No. Blofeld? And Blofeld's like, look, baby, I got cures and vaccines being made over here in the lab to eliminate all allergies. So you can beat it, book nerd. The science nerds are here. We're going to take care of all this. All right. Yeah, start on the preliminary research, baby. And then shoes him off. And back at his room, Bond finds the eight on his leg. He gets a, a, a close-up look at it, and he's like, Holy shit, she's in the infinity room. How in the hell am I going to find that? Wait a minute. She's double O what? Crikey. <laughs> Why wouldn't she put the real number at the end of it? I think her name is double O Mole. She might be in the L room. It kind of looks like L eyes. So here, Bond actually does like some James Bond stuff that I can appreciate where he like gets a wire out of a ruler to figure out how to open up his locked door uh-huh. and be able to come and go more freely. So he gets himself out of it. He goes straight to room of eight, Of course man. he does, because he's about to get it wet. He's got a sure thing waiting for him. Yeah. He gets into Meg Ryan's place or Ruby's place. When he comes into the room, Ruby says, ooh, I'd like to see the pictures in your book. And Bond says, Hey, you're a picture yourself, and you're twice as lovely by the firelight. And then Ruby says, oh, you're funny, pretending not to like girls. And I was like, wait, is that what happened at dinner? His bookish demeanor was perceived as potential homosexuality? And then Bond just says, hey, look, less talking, more rooting. And then that's just when he drops his kilt, and Ruby says, ooh, it is true what they say about Scotsmen, or Australians, or Englishmen, or whatever y'all. Get on top of me. Have a ride. Yeah, and so he loves her up a little bit, and then it starts uh-huh. asking her about the clinic, and she was like, I was recruited by Frau Barbissina, I was. And then the ceiling starts flashing. Sorry, love, it's time for me cure. And she crosses her arms like Nosferatu and just closes her <laughs> yeah. eyes. 
And Blofeld is playing cassette tapes into the rooms of all the ladies. It's a bunch of Emerson, Lake, and Palmer-inspired emo music that starts blaring around over his voiceover. Breathe deep, the gathering gloom. (laughs) The lights up above the bed start flashing these muted colors of the rainbow. And it's a real, there's no earthly way of knowing which direction we are going. (laughs) Yeah. The danger must be growing for the rowers keep on rowing. Yeah. And they're certainly not showing any signs that they are slowing. So all the ladies are getting hypnotized not to be uh, allergic. Do you remember what it was like when you first came here? When you saw a chicken, you would throw up and shit your pants, Ruby. That's not you anymore, your cure. And when you return home, I will give you special instructions to carry out my sinister plan, baby. And then you'll forget it forever. I love the fact that he says, you love the flesh of chicken. Which is one of those (laughs) things that you hear in a movie and you're like, wait a second, what did he say? You like the skin baby when it's been battered in flour with salt and other seasoning and deep fried it's quite delicious i ran into a guy a colonel when i was visiting the united states guy who got me interested in becoming a count colonel sanders i was introduced by felix Leiter, the guy would never leave the parking lot of the joint he loved that chicken baby you know in america baby you can just give yourself a title because this guy colonel sanders he sure as fuck wasn't a real colonel never even was in the military Kind of like my friend Goldfink. That asshole gave himself a title as well. Look what happened to him. Sucked out of a plane, the fat bastard. You know where they found him? Crashed into a Colonel Sanders. They called him Golden Brown Finger because he was <laughs> deep fried and he shit his pants. <laughs> Golden Stink Finger. But Bond uh, can't wake her up for another <laughs> fuck. He's like, well, I'm done. And also, it's not as much fun to restrain someone if they're non-resistant like that. Uh, so he comes back to his room. And then the other one, Nancy, is that her name? Nancy is in James Bond's room. And she comes in and she says, I'd like to see your book too. He says, hey, look, uh, I can't find my book, but you know what? You're pretty as a picture yourself. And you're twice as lovely in the firelight. And Nancy says, you're funny, pretending to not like girls. And Bond says, hey, what say we put a second coat of shellac on my manhood? I don't even know your name, but guess what? You don't need to tell me, because I like anonymous sex. I'm into that. You and Ruby don't talk much, do you? <laughs> you don't compare notes, is what I'm asking. What's say you and I just put a few extra miles on this bed, and then we'll cut to the next scene at the ski lodge. Here's kind of my problem with this. On the one hand, it's like, okay, well, this is fun Bond stuff. The problem with that is that the first hour of this movie was about Bond like having this raindrops keep falling on my head falling in love moment with Diana Rigg and that name ain't even in his mouth anymore no work comes first yeah I suppose I think there might be (laughs) a way to get the information without necessarily fucking all these women but you know why would you do that it's the perks of the job oh he can fuck whoever he wants he can kill whoever he wants yeah all right down at this resort uh Campbell is his name according to you Chad (laughs) um (laughs) he is looking up at the clinic and he's like hey it's some real bullshit that you won't let me go up here you fucking assholes beat it get out of here it's private property go on get out this is not you for you wait a second hold on a minute i have a question are you william cat from greatest american hero i I get that a lot but i'm not william cat from the greatest american hero are you the guy from caddy you know um i get that a lot too but that was also William Cat. Wait, you're telling me greatest American hero is also a man who treats Carrie nicely than badly? <gasps> Did not know this. Okay, let me ask you one more question. In between <laughs> original Piranha and one they do in 3D, <laughs> they do 
another piranha. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. Now, many dead. That you? You know, um, can I get to the evil lair on this gondola? You know, oh, I, no. I am William Cat. I am, I'm William Cat. Can I, can I get up there if I'm William Cat? Oh, no. I ask because if you try to go, we shoot you. And if you greatest American <laughs> hero, maybe it just bounce off. No, we absolutely going to shoot you. <laughs> Don't be crazy. So he's he's denied. So we go back to the evil lair, and all of the girls are curling. <laughs> and then there's a joke about there's there's a joke about James Bond's stiffness being gone. And Nancy and Ruby they smile because they fucked him the night before, right? And then <laughs> yeah, they're both like, mm-hmm. Well, I think that stiffness <laughs> is coming back tonight, don't you, James? He comes over and says, I must have sex with you tonight, Sir Hillary. And Bond says, okay, how about eight o'clock? And then Nancy comes over and she says, I need to get my pipes cleaned. And Bond says, all right, how about nine o'clock? And then the, the Chinese girl walks by and Bond goes, 10 o'clock? He's going to have sex with three women in one night, every hour on the hour? Thank God for penicillin. This whole scene is just James Bond doing the back of the envelope math of like, can I fuck all of these girls before my cover's blown? I think I can. <laughs> About this time, a bunch of armed guards see Campbell climbing up the side of the mountain with ropes and ice hammers, and then they shoot weapons at him, but they don't kill him. And then Blofeld shows up, and he's like, hey, get off my mountain, jackass. And then Campbell's at the top, and Bond sees Campbell, and you think something's going to come of this, but it doesn't. And then Bond tells Blofeld, he's like, hey, look, I've been working on confirming your lineage, and I kind of need the day off. I know I just got here yesterday, but I worked a whole lot last night. Fucking, I mean, working on on this counting on. I was really burning the midnight penis. I mean oil. I mean oil on my penis. I like midnight oil. Down where the river flows. Wait, what are we talking about here? Did you know that most koala bears have gonorrhea? It's true. (laughs) Especially the ones that I've found. In fact, I was responsible. I was patient zero. I was patient zero zero seven. (laughs) That's why they call me 007. Because I fucked seven koalas. And I gave more gonorrhea. (laughs) When are we going to go to Augsburg? I hear we can get all kinds of diseases there. I hear that they've got a red light district, an orange light district, a pink light (laughs) district, and something called a purple light district. Look, baby, I'm not going to Augsburg. I'm not going anywhere, and neither are you. Get back to work. Plus, it's Christmas time. Wait, what? It's Christmas in this movie, Bo? Yeah, as it happens. And as he leaves, <laughs> he complains to one of the guards. He's like, oh, work's really piling up, you know what I mean? Because of all the fucking... <laughs> You know what I'm saying? And this guy's like, hey, man, I'm out on this rickety-ass metal platform. (laughs) It's exactly three degrees outside with a wind chill of hypothermia. Yeah, you want me to show you any empathy for the burden of fucking these gorgeous (laughs) women by a fire while I'm out here freezing my balls off? So, later that evening, after everyone returns from Christmas shopping in the village, Bond wanders into Ruby's room for some Ruby-Doo, and he goes over to find Sleeping Ruby, and Ruby pops up, but it's Irma Bunt. And hiding in the shadows is Gunther, her henchman. And he clocks Bond over the head, knocking him unconscious. Which, but that is a movie trope that I don't think holds up to scientific experimentation and empirical validation. A smack on the noggin renders you temporarily unconscious. I don't think so. You might kill him. I wonder. I've never tried. Mostly because I'd have to do it to myself. But now that I think about it, I could probably rig up some kind of brick and pulley system. Maybe like a giant mallet that you would find on the train from Wild Wild West. <laughs> yeah. 
Or tie it to the doorknob so that when you open the door, the mallet comes down and just conks you on the head? Yeah, it's called the uh, at-home home alone. You tie a paint can to a rope and you knock yourself out. They In the movie The Babysitter, they emulate that bit only with, in quotes, real-world repercussions of actually just completely crushing a human being's skull with that. In the movie Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, they don't do anything like that. I've never seen that movie. You don't need to. Bond comes to and Blofeld is there and he says, hey, Bond, baby, look, I know you're not Sir Hillary Bores a lot, but in fact, are James Bond. The archives of Blowship, they're not in Roddingshire, Hampton, Schmeckenden or whatever you said. They're actually in St. Anna, Kitchensburg and St. John. Any cut rate genealogist knows that. You're a hack, baby. The jig, as one might say, is clearly up. I like the kind of trippy camera work when he wakes up in Blofeld's office and it does this weird edit between like the angel on the tree and blowfeld yeah it's like these psychedelic christmas tree ornaments yeah it's kind of cool yeah and then blowfield gives him his plan which is like i've concocted some crazy virus baby it'll make all plants and animals sterile oh and by the way your buddy campbell he spilled the beans he's dead now and since it's christmas and there's a christmas tree behind me you know what i'm gonna do i'm gonna contact the united nations and tell them that i'm gonna destroy the world's economies baby it's kind of the plot that sean connery has in the avengers which is i'm going to hold ransom the world and i will release this sterilization virus and my angels of death these women that he's hypnotized they are kind of manchurian candidated so that they're going to deliver wait a minute you're so you're telling me you're not making vaccines you're making bacteria bacteriological warfare wait a minute nobody's going to be able to make a baby you mean I could fuck anybody whenever I wanted and not have to worry about having a bunch of little mates running around? That sounds fantastic. <laughs> Let me tell you about being ground zero for a gonorrhea koala outbreak. Look, baby, I don't want to hear about your weird shit you did back in the outback, all right? This is going to be mass extinction, mass hysteria, dogs and cats not sleeping together, unimaginable chaos worldwide. But we're keeping it classy. Says, that sounds like a real pickle. But once the United Nations warned, they're going to have enough time to come up with a vaccine, right? Not a chance, baby. This thing's going to be out there. My girls are going to get it done. Now, the only reason I'm keeping you alive is just to prove to the UN that I'm serious. Whatever that means, baby. So Blofeld takes Bond and tosses him into the gearworks of the gondola system. It seems like a really strange place to leave a super spy because there is a place for him to escape, meaning the giant hole on the wall (laughs) where the cables enter and exit. Right. Yeah, like you killed Campbell and hung him up outside the window. Do that. Shoot him in the head. You're done. I got a gun up in my room right now. I'll go get it. But here's one thing, because I know I, I I say enough terrible things about these movies. Here's something I really liked in this movie. I like when, right before they throw him into the really stupid jail cell, Bond is like, fuck this, <laughs> and fights. You know, like this is his yeah. last hurrah. Mm-hmm. And I like the fact that Blofeld never bats an eye. Like, even as Bond is inches away from grabbing him, yeah. he never flinches or moves. And it's like, that's a good villain. Hey, baby, what do you think I pay these two guys for? Careful you don't end up like your pal 
about Campbell. It happens to tourists all the time, baby. Don't try to sneak out through that giant hole in the wall or I'll be really upset. Now, the scene when Bond gets thrown into this gearworks room, I think it's a pretty good scene where we actually see Lazenby climbing up on the gears and he shimmies across the cables of this gondola and he rips the pockets Mm -hmm. from his pants inside out to create protection from his fingers against what one would assume are very cold metal wires. I think that all of this gear work is really well done and you see Lazenby again doing more of his stunt work. The one downfall is that he's dressed like a 1960s youth pastor (laughs) with this v-neck sweater vest. It's all brown. It's like, hey Billy, they look like something's troubling you. I don't know. There are girls at school and (laughs) my face is starting to break out and nobody really likes me. You know, Billy, there's a book that can help you. It's the Bible, Billy. You think it's got the answers to the questions I have? (laughs) Billy, it's got the questions that you have. It's got the questions that the entire world has. Billy, sit on my lap. Whoa, Billy, where are you going? I'm not falling for that again. You're a fucking pervert. I didn't see Connery doing anything like this in his movies. I agree. I think I, I think the stuff with him using his uh, his pocket, you know, the cloth in his pockets to, as gloves and stuff, I thought all that was, was pretty cool. I like that he makes it across and then it fires up and throws him back to square one. Yeah, and then he has to kind of play it the other way. Yeah, all that stuff is, is, is pretty good. Meanwhile, the girls are gathering in the Alpine room where they are given drugged eggnog by F- Frau Bunt. And they're, the ladies are hypnotized again by Telly Savalas, a.k.a. Blofeld. And this is the point where he's like, Listen, babies, when you get out there in the world, you're going to have this compact. It's a crazy little radio thing. You're going to find yourself alone every night at midnight, and you're going to check in with me, Ernst Blofeld. (laughs) And you're just going to see if I give you the signal. You know, the signal. It says, you up? And then I'm going to tell you what to do, and how to do it, and when to do it, and how fast to do it. Listen up, baby. The one thing you're never going to use, the atomizer. Keep your filthy lady hands off of it until I... I say so. Got me, babies? <laughs> During this whole scene, James Bond, who has escaped and made his way back inside, he kind of hears all this, but then he gets bored with it, <laughs> and he's like, eh, I'm done. So he just heads down the stairs, and a science nerd is coming up in the elevator, and then Bond rides down to the first floor, and this is a scene that I really like. There's a henchman at a desk, and the elevator ding but nobody gets out and the camera just holds long enough for the henchman at the desk to sort of realize something's hanky and he gets up and walks over to investigate and right when he gets to the door Bond just jumps out and beats the shit out of the guy right that's pretty good this whole next sequence like this is the point where I was really on board with this movie where he he knocks that guy out it turns out that guy was just guarding a closet full of ski supplies dude do you know how expensive that stuff is no somebody gets in there that's like thousands of dollars if you're gonna guard your allergy center so furiously (laughs) i i guess so i'm a little paranoid baby i grew up poor (laughs) bond drags the body of this henchman into the ski closet and then bond puts on some ski clothes and he grabs some skis and he takes off down the side of the mountain at night blofeld's men who get machine guns and they're chasing him down the mountains and it's a really cool sequence where you see guys firing machine guns while skiing and that's never bad for the time in which it was made it's pretty impressive there's a a dude who goes into a tree two dudes go full sunny bono 
yeah. it's fantastic that's really good one dude goes off a, a, a mountain and they throw this dummy on skis off a mountain all the way down and that is solid that is one of the greatest moments in this movie when bond takes off one of his skis and clocks that dude in the belly and when he tumbles off the side of this precipice like wily e. coyote that body falls a good 500 feet to the ground and the camera just holds on <laughs> yeah. as it silently goes down you can't tell me you were not expecting there to be some sort of sound effect when it hit the ground and it's just silent like i really wanted a good old-fashioned looney tunes it's the best yeah, it's it that's really really good <laughs> meanwhile down at the village the girls are being loaded onto uh, a bus by bunt bond has made his way down to the village after genuinely excitingly dodging all of blofeld's men and and making his way down he skis on one ski at a point man like his ski breaks and then steals has to steal more skis is like hey fuck you i'm taking your skis now what do you think of that and then yeah knocks out one of the guys after him to get his uh his skis to get the rest of the way down the mountain it's again that whole sequence is really good the only thing that doesn't hold up is the rear screen projection where you see george lazenby against a backdrop of moving ski footage to show close-ups of him i get it that was as good as it got at the time and it, it almost undermines the incredible footage that they are able to put together to try to interject him to actually be in the scene yeah i mean you know kind of how i feel about that stuff i really don't mind the old school camera tricks and stuff i i find that stuff kind of charming in its own way so all the rear screen and the, the analog projection stuff and also the model work that they do later in the movie i find all that stuff to be genuinely kind of fun and and the model work in particular i thought was really good so bond's down in this village in the swiss alps below and it is christmas time and in the village city street lights even stoplights flash a bright red and green as shoppers rush home with their presents and irma bunt she's hustling off all of the women to get him back up to the evil lair and then irma bunt gets wind that bond has escaped and so she jumps into this black mercedes with three other henchmen to go find james bond and this forced them they're just driving through the crowded village streets honking their horn like complete assholes and then bond makes his way into a barn full of giant church bells and i guess cookery it's the place where jack sparrow and will turner first fought <laughs> it looks a lot like that joint and he just bangs into a bunch of pots is like oh god damn it bond come on man you're supposed to be a spy not backing into shit like he's really hard on himself you can see it on his face that chiseled blocky face of his he knocks out the two henchmen he finds a coat and steals it and puts it on pops up the collar and he sort of makes his way into the crowd of shoppers and then irma she gets back into her car with the remaining henchmen that didn't get beat up <laughs> who she calls idiots by the way when she sees them she's like those idiots <laughs> just pissed off at him i love that it's not like hey are you okay larry you've been working with us for a long time it's just Ah, you are useless! They go back into the city streets, honking and screaming, which it, it doesn't really work. So Irma and her henchmen, they get out and they give chase on foot. And the scene is really disorienting as Bond is on the run. At one point, he runs into a giant polar bear costume with a jerk inside, taking flash photography of strangers. It's got this real funhouse quality to it. There's this cackling laughter mm -hmm. woven into the soundtrack, but all of this is set against this 
this Karen Carpenter inspired Christmas song called Do You Know How Christmas Trees Are Grown? And it is just a living nightmare on <laughs> yeah, film. It's like if the It's a Small World Kids sang a Christmas song that was written in hell. And it, again, it's very, like you said, it's disorienting. It's really dark. It has this very like gritty 70s movie kind of feel to it. At some point, he's going to pass Gene Hackman with a bug in his ear. Bond's going to go home and rip up the floor of his apartment. I know Tracy's here somewhere. I just got to find it. I think that Bond in this scene looks scared. Yeah. Because he's he's 100% alone. There are people out there that really want him dead. And this is the point in the movie where I thought, you know, earlier James Bond spent a lot of time falling in love with Tracy. And wouldn't you know it, Bo, Tracy yeah. skates up on this ice skating rink right beside James Bond. And the way it happens, it at least at this point, it feels very coincidental, which is how I thought it was happening. It's not, she's a crazy stalker. And it felt somewhat organic rather than contrived at this point to me. It's a very deus ex Diana Riggs. <laughs> Where, yeah, I mean, he's just at his lowest point and she just skates up to him and is like, hey, you want to drive out of this scene? I guess I've had times in my life where I've met people for short periods of time and then just life brings you back together at the craziest moment. It seems somewhat believable that she would be there as opposed to, what the fuck? This is a crazy rich person? I could see her being. There's that. And also, I kind of got ahead of the movie in the sense that when she showed up, I was like, oh, she followed him here because she's she's in love with him and, and is making sure that he doesn't get in trouble. Like the relationship that they've kind of established is this very equal relationship between the two of them where they're saving one another. Bond says, Tracy, they're people, they're after me. Tracy's like, huh, yeah, I know that feeling. I have people trying to kill me too. Are your assassins from planet Deuterion from the Valgor galaxy? <laughs> I can help you. I have a car and enough tinfoil and knives in the trunk that we can survive for gigons and gigons. And then fireworks start exploding in the sky. James Bond and Tracy make their way to her car. She's in that same red convertible. Who drives a convertible in the Swiss Alps? But anyway, the henchmen see Bond and Tracy getting away and they kind of give chase. Tracy's like, uh, James Bond, I didn't hear a thank you. And Bond's like, ah, sorry, Tracy. Uh, by the way, what are you doing here in the village? Do you have an interest in winter sports now? Because I kind of like water sports. You like water sports? Wink, wink. Tracy's like, uh, no. I don't like winter sports. I like winter sports men. In fact, one sports man in particular. One James Bond sportsman. Look, my dad told me where you were going to be and I showed up to find you. Surprise, here I am. <laughs> also, I'm pregnant. Okay, I'm not really pregnant, but would you stay with me if you thought I was pregnant? If you were to hear something like this, how could you ever get a good night's sleep again? <laughs> Considering who we're talking about here, James Bond is a despicable person. It's not a question of if, it's just when is she going to murder you in your sleep? <laughs> or both of you, preferably. <laughs> she is a crazy girlfriend and crazy girlfriends can be fun for a while. But it ends in one of three places, a hospital, a jail, or a cemetery. <laughs> what I like about her in theory, like there is a whole fan movie I have in my head of this movie that's really good about the relationship between him and Tracy, which this movie I think genuinely fucks up. I do think there is something really interesting about the idea of James Bond meeting his match. And, you know, like the literary analog to this would be something like Mel Gibson meeting Rene Russo in Lethal Weapon 3. Sherlock Holmes and Stella Adler. That was the woman who was an 
equal to Holmes who outsmarted him and was able to get away. And also there's an element of like, maybe I'm letting her get away. There's a bit of Batman Catwoman in in my parlance Mm -hmm. in that kind of relationship where it's two people uh, who are on slightly opposite sides of the law as Tracy's father's mob background would suggest. Yes. Being, like I said, equal to one another and having the same sort of personal philosophy or at least philosophies that mesh in an interesting and compelling way. I completely agree, which is what makes this one of the best James Bond movies ever. Right. I think that all of that is there. Do I think it could be executed better? Absolutely. But that is really the essence of these two characters' relationship. The fact that he fucks around so much in Switzerland kind of undoes some of that. And when you get to the emotional moment coming up, it rings a little hollow because it's like, yeah, but you were like 10 minutes ago, you were fucking everybody. That didn't mean nothing. Fine. But anyway, she takes him to this nearby village with a post office because he's like, hey, I've got to talk to London. Place of my birth. (laughs) Tracy is like, you know, it explains the whole deal about like, I know where there's a telephone. I can get you to the next town. Which is like a mile away. Yeah. Or it's, it's somewhere down the road. So he pulls over, he makes a call to M, but then our henchmen show up and they start firing bullets at him in the phone booth. So he runs down the streets of this village, jumps into Tracy's car. They speed off with Tracy driving. She is going 70 miles an hour and he's getting all into it. He's like, hey, good girl. Look at you. You really know how to handle this machine. You're fucking batshit crazy. I like this. And then they return back to the village from whence they came. And there is this wintertime stock car race happening that is a tradition during this festive season the yuletide 500 i think they call it (laughs) and tracy just drives her red convertible onto this racetrack and they are now in the race and tracy is a complete nutter butter our bad guys chase them onto this icy road stock car racetrack and this has turned into a demolition derby yeah it's genuinely great you gotta think that this came from the avengers to some degree because there was a whole deal in that series about how great Emma Peel was at driving a car and I wonder if they weren't just like hey we've got Emma Peel <laughs> how about we just ever do her thing I love the destruction of these cars during this race it's the bread and butter of 1970s action films and I loved every minute of it because it is real cars getting smashed there are henchmen firing guns there are innocent civilians just all around the racers on the track are just shitting their pants the henchman's car goes into the grandstands flips upside down and it explodes Explodes as the henchmen slash stuntmen, they barely get out. It like blows one of the stuntmen across the way. And there's a hundred percent chance that that guy ended up in the ER or the morgue. Yeah. And once they've kind of lost all the henchmen, they just leave the race. Like they find laughing and giggling. Yeah. And Tracy even has a great line where she's like, oh, we didn't even stop for the prize. (laughs) (laughs) Aren't we just a couple of maniacs? And which they are. They're both like they're made for each other other they're both lunatics we just committed vehicular homicide aren't we incorrigible <laughs> and then, as they're driving away the the windshield is freezing over and so they because a blizzard shows up right they can't drive anymore so they find this barn in the middle of nowhere to hide for the night yeah that's what you do bo you just pull into a, a barn at a house <laughs> right and, and if the owner shows up like cracky i'll just break his neck yeah i'll kill him also that solves two problems because
because then we can eat him. They're in this horse barn and they pull the doors closed, but there's still wind and snow howling through it. And you know, it's like two degrees Fahrenheit. And this barn has got to smell like horse piss and horse shit because there's two horses there. And so Bond and Tracy, they climb up into the, the loft as the wind is howling and they lie on this blanket and they have a little pillow talk. And Tracy looks over at James Bond and she says, <laughs> what are you thinking about? Is it me? And Bond's like, yeah. I was thinking about us. Look, Tracy, I'm a secret agent and I got to be concerned about just me. But you know what? I think I'm going to find myself a new job so that we can be together. Look, Tracy, I love you and I'm never going to find another girl like you. Tracy, will you marry me? Yes, yes, a thousand times. Yes, oh my God. This is just like what the chicken promised me. But Tracy is a crazy person. She may be the worst girlfriend in cinematic history, which, Bo, that brings me to a little game that I like to call you're the worst uh-huh. where I Chad will give you both two names of famous movie girlfriends and you have to tell me which one of them is the worst girlfriend between the two your selection will move on as the champion to battle a challenger until we have decided who is the worst movie girlfriend of all time it's like Digstown, but with terrible girlfriends great here we go uh-huh. Tracy in on her Majesty's Secret Service or Jennifer Jason Lee in single white female oh single white female Jennifer Jason Lee in single white female or Glenn Close in fatal attraction she did boil a rabbit in a pot that belonged to a child. She did. And uh, the, the heel in the eyeball is really getting Jennifer Jason Lee some points there. I uh, Glenn Close. Glenn Close in Fatal Attraction, who boiled a rabbit in a pot. And Lady Macbeth in Macbeth. Mm, Glenn Close. Glenn Close in Fatal Attraction. Or Cameron Diaz in Vanilla Sky. Oh, wow. She is a bad girlfriend. I'm going to go with her because she she was genuinely crazy pants. Cameron Diaz in Vanilla Sky or Mrs. Robinson in The Graduate. Oh, Cameron Diaz. Mrs. Robinson is just, you know, down for a good time. Cameron Diaz in Vanilla Sky or Norma Desmond from Sunset Boulevard. Keep in mind, she did kill her boy toy. Yeah, and went completely bananas. I'm still sticking with Cameron Diaz. Cameron Diaz in Vanilla Sky or Sharon Stone in Casino. Drug addict, prostitute, hustler. Cameron Diaz. Cameron Diaz in Vanilla Sky or Sharon Stone in Basic Instinct. Season 6, Episode 5 of Big 6 Movie. I mean, she's going to show her pussy to all the police. So you're going to have to deal with that shade. But it's not entirely proven that she's a murderer, but she could be. I'm still sticking with Cameron Diaz. Cameron Diaz in Vanilla Sky or Janine Triplehorn in Basic Instinct. Also season six, episode five of Big Six Movie. Yeah, Janine Triplehorn is a much worse girlfriend. Janine Triplehorn in Basic Instinct or Academy Award winning actress Charlize Theron in Monster. You know what? Those guys had it coming. I, I'm I'm not, I'm staying. Janine Triplehorn in Basic Instinct or Kate Winslet in Titanic. There was enough room on that board for Leo DiCaprio. <laughs> yeah, but she'd probably seen the island. I'm staying with Gene Triplehorn. Gene Triplehorn in Basic Instinct or Jenny from Forrest Gump. Oh, wow. She's terrible. Like, she's not murderous, <laughs> but she's an awful person. I'm staying with Gene Triplehorn because of, of the murder. Gene Triplehorn in Basic Instinct or Nicole Kidman in To Die For. I'm sticking with Gene Triplehorn. Nicole Kidman's only going to kill, like, one person max. Gene Triplehorn in Basic Instinct or Rogue from the X-Men. Remember, you can't touch her. It'll kill you. Gene Triplehorn. Like, they found all kinds of ways around that. Rogue's been fucking all kinds of people in in those books. Gene Triplehorn from Basic Instinct or Gene Grey slash Phoenix from X-Men The Last Stand. Remember, she killed her boyfriend, Psycho. Yeah, also, that's just a terrible, terrible movie. It's gotta be The Dark Phoenix for her, both her murderous impulses and the crime against cinema. Phoenix from X-Men The Last Stand or Stacy from Wayne's World. She did buy Wayne a gun rack and he didn't own any guns. She's mental. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. Nope. I'm going to stay. Phoenix from X-Men The Last Stand or Annie Hall from Annie Hall. But what kind of person calls up their ex and demands them come over to kill a spider? Especially one the size of a lobster. <laughs> Annie Hall, because mostly because the hats. Annie Hall from Annie Hall or Zoe Deschanel from 500 Days of Summer. Oh, mm-hmm. oh God. I don't even remember her in that movie. So <laughs> uh, probably her. I probably blocked it out. Did she kill anybody in that movie? <laughs> she killed a lot of my time. Yeah, no, it's uh, Zoe Deschanel, 100%. Zoe Deschanel as Summer in 500 Days of Summer or Jennifer Aniston in every movie she's ever made. <laughs> Nah, she was that sexy dentist. No, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stick. Zoe Deschanel as Summer in 500 Days of Summer, or Asami Yamazaki from Audition. Oh fuck! She drugged her boyfriend and tortured him with needles, and she fed a guy a bowl of vomit. Uh, yeah, Asami from uh from Audition for sure. Asami from Audition, or Elsa from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. She's not only fucking Indiana Jones, but she's fucking his dad too, and she's an undercover Nazi. I mean, it's Asami. Did you not hear the thing? that you said about the vomit in the bowl. And lastly, Asami or Peppermint Patty from every Charlie Brown special ever. Asami's the clear winner of the worst girlfriend of all time. Like The piano wire in the foot was the first date. There we have it. Asami from Audition, worst girlfriend ever. Yes. In, in cinema history, I feel like that will stand the test of time. If you have any doubt that Tracy isn't a sack of inside out marbles in this scene where they're up in the hayloft, she is wearing no clothes underneath her neck to toe full length fur coat. Mm-hmm. She does have her bra and panties on. And look again, she may be the perfect woman for James Bond and Tracy accepts his wedding proposal. And she says, Oh, let's have sex right now before hypothermia sets in and we can't feel the pleasure of our genitals. And then James Bond shows a little restraint and he says, look, I want to wait to have sex on our wedding night. It's my new year's resolution. So Bond picks up Tracy and he tosses her on this elevated platform beside him. And this chastity lasts for about eight seconds because Bond just pulls the leg out of the platform and she falls down. He's like, yeah, it's not the new yet. What do you say you and I go bareback? The horses don't mind. In fact, I like it when they watch. Oi, I thought I was gonna, you know, lean on tradition. And then I thought, hey, we could be fucking. And then we did. Would you be interested in going down and you and I having a poke in the horse stall? Look, I'm going to hold the horse. You're going <laughs> to bend down and whatever happens, happens. Have you ever seen this birthday card that Chad sent to Bo with a picture of his kid in Tijuana? I was thinking something like that might happen. You know what? Let's save that for our wedding night. Tonight, you and me, we're just going to have regular old freaky weird sex. (laughs) Like we had back in that hotel when you stole my gun. By the way, I really need that back. Tonight, I'm just going to spank your vagina until you scream. And then (laughs) choke you while I make love to you. You know, just standard stuff. How me mom and me die yesterday. On our honeymoon, I'm going to have two knitting needles and a bullwhip. Now you get the whip and I get the needles. And whoever releases the most blood wins. Also, if you get a needle in my penis, then I have to do anything you say for a week. And I'm going to give you an envelope full of a million dollars that your dad's going to give me. There's also a real nice, like, Sybil Shepherd from Moonlighting gauze over some of the shots of Diana Rigg, <laughs> which, again, I'm fine with. She's a beautiful woman, really fun actress, and it's fun to see her in, the, in these scenes all glamoured up and whatnot. So they, they, they get on to fucking. The next morning, Blofeld and his crew, they show up at the 
barn somehow. But Bond and Tracy are gone and skiing away. And so the henchmen all give chase and we get more really nice helicopter shots of freshly fallen snow. And it's a really good shot because they only had one time to get this on film. Because you see all of these people skiing down the side of this mountain that is totally pristine. Mm -hmm. As they're skiing in pursuit, Chad, maybe my favorite thing in the movie happens. I know it is. (laughs) So one of the henchmen chasing after Vaughn, there's like a, a snow machine that blows fresh powder or something. It's like clearing a road. It, it is paving a path for cars to drive. So it is sucking in and blowing out a lot of snow. Right. And so a henchman falls into the front of this thing. Oh my God. And like a wood chipper gets chewed up in it. And the touch that I liked, I mean, that part I was like, oh, well done, Honor Majesty's Secret Service. But then when the snow started blowing red for a minute uh-huh and then went back to white i was like now that is production design that this guy appreciates well done you think the driver was just the driver just like i'm not stopping that's what i got the union for right that's what the insurance is for hey guys uh i think i ran over a deer today <laughs> yeah you might want to hose it off a little bit i uh, was the deer wearing a watch because i found one of those here in the gears <laughs> It was a deer. Do you want to fill out the paperwork? I sure as fuck don't. I'm going home. Yeah, it was the first watch-wearing deer I ever heard of, but... There's curling on TV tonight. I'm not sticking around with this shit. <laughs> right. So as they're skiing away, Blofeld fires a charge off in the distance that creates an avalanche. And Bond and Tracy are skiing in front of it. And they get covered up with snow. And again, this avalanche that they film is really good. Mm-hmm. And the way that they mat this together looks fantastic for the time in which it was made. Yeah, it's very cool. Like, there again, there's a lot of this use of both stock footage and some rear projection and some close-ups they mat together certain elements of the snow falling and the background of it it looks really good yeah and then just straight up animate some skiers onto the slopes at certain points too and but it's not long enough that you can call bullshit on it It happens and it's gone all this stuff is the kind of movie magic stuff i like it like one of my favorite things ever in movies is the dam breaking scene in the original superman that looks totally like a model but is the coolest model you ever saw and uh and it, it, it has there are moments that kind of have that vibe to it blofeld looks down and he's like hey baby i can see tracy down there henchman go down there and drag her up to the evil lair so they go get tracy and then bond kind of climbs his way out of the snow and let me also just go back for a moment when the avalanche was happening i was like shit i think tracy's gonna die clearly bond's not gonna die but this was the moment where i was like they could kill her and then that gives him this fit of rage to go and kill the man who killed the woman that he loved yeah that would have made complete sense but it doesn't happen she lives but bond gets up and he's like oh shit i gotta get that gun back wait where's tracy tracy i gotta explain this to him cut back to m's office it it was crazy to me watching this for the first time when he just left it was like why did you not go after her immediately and he's just like you know what i'm gonna take five take stock of everything maybe get a few things from q i took it that he left and that they got separated and covered with snow and it's like ah she's dead I gotta get the fuck out of here. But later, it's clear that he thinks Tracy is a lot. He just kind of, he just took a knee for a second. Maybe they got some intel back. He does work for MI6. Maybe. But anyway, so M is like, listen, James, uh, we got Blofeld's demands, and it turns out we're just gonna roll over. We're gonna give him everything. We're gonna do it really on the down low. Here's what he's demanding, uh, James. He wants a full pardon for all of the crimes that he's committed. Done. That's easy. And he wants the title of Count uh, when he retires to his personal. Turns out none of us gave a shit about that, so 
So, so done and done. Like, that's it? That's all you want? No money? Just, okay, all right. And Bond's like, hey, look, when are they going to close the deal? M says, it's going to be a day and a half, Bond. Bond says, I'm going to go blow this motherfucker's headquarters out, and I'm going to save Tracy. And M tells him, look, Bond, you're off the case. And Bond says, hey, up your ass, old man. I'm going to call Tracy's dad, Draco, and we're going to go blow the shit out of this fucker's even layer. See you later, potato. <laughs> yeah, and which is what happens. He calls up Draco and is like, hey, you interested in doing something really illegal? Hey, that's all that I do. I work in criminal enterprises. What do you have hmm. in mind? Let me ask you this, Mr. Bond. Can we uh, blow us something up oh yeah we're gonna blow something up for sure hey let me tell you something i just got my hand on the uh, three helicopters that are painted up as a a illegal red cross mobile unit you think we could use something like that uh, to be involved in this explosion rescue mission that you're talking about yeah that's perfect do you happen to have anybody that maybe you recently muscled for money that we can have hanging off the skids you know like patience absolutely i've got whatever you need now here's the thing this is the deal breaker who are we going to go or a rescue is is it a president is it a prime minister is it someone who's involved in criminal enterprises that i could lord over who are we going to go save oh i was burying the lead you're gonna love this it's your daughter Tracy. Yeah, I left her in a bunch of snow. I know, I thought uh, I thought she was dead. I've already had the funeral for Trace. She did. The invite hit my mail, but I thought it was just a prank. All right, I'm in for a pinch, I'm in for a pound, okay? We're going to go, we're going to blow up the lair. But here's the thing. If Tracy gets killed, it's no big deal, okay? All right, let's just say best effort. We'll agree on that, right? It all sounds good. Look, I want to go and blow some shit up. I got a bunch of guys with itchy trigger fingers. Come over to my house, we'll get drunk, and then we'll go blow this place up. That sounds like a great plan. What? Works for me. I'll be over it. I'll tell you what. Let's make it nine so I can drink. That's a nine a.m. or a nine at the p.m. Pick your poison. Let's say a.m. I'm better flying drunk in the morning. In the evening, I'm a little bit sketchy. Okay. Uh-huh. Just real quick before you hang up. Do we need to bring any of the bulls? Hey, couldn't hurt. You know? Can you tie him to the back or something? Yeah, that you read in my mind. I was going to hang him off and make him look like a giant piñatas. We could smack him into the trees of the mountains. It'd be funny, okay? It's no worse than watching him get stabbed by swords in a tiny little circle. This is all I want to see that from this movie now, is I want to see these two knuckleheads plotting <laughs> crimes and heists. Hey, we're going to knock over a bank. Do you have a tank and maybe a 4th of July display? I got the two tanks, all right? I got two tanks and I got a bomb that I bought from my friend Oracle Goldfinger. It was a backup bomb, but he got sucked out of a plane. Maybe they're not uh, tanks per se. They are Macy's floats, sir. <laughs> I got to think, hey, you know what I was thinking? Maybe we could go assassinate the Pope, huh? <laughs> You know, I'm free on Thursday. I'm free every day, all right? I'm Draco. I play chess with my assistant, I have sex with her, and I try to kill my dog. I gotta tell you, it sounds like you got a great operation. You hiring? I think I'm gonna blow this MI6 thing off. Let me ask you, do you have profit sharing? Because if you do, that's a gimme. I'll change my name to James Draco if you want. Hey, you could have been a son I never had, all right? Then, you know, if that's the case, you can't marry to Tracy. We got to kill her. You become my son. We fly around with the cows hanging off of the helicopters. We assassinated the popes. And then we just get drunk every morning before 10 a.m. It sounds like a great plan. I love you, son. That's how the gypsy said I was going to die. A cow tied to a helicopter. <laughs> I don't know why I suggest it, but I do every time. 
They uh, form their scheme, and then they approach in helicopters to Blofeld's alpine lair, while Blofeld is inside trying to seduce Tracy. He's just like, who loves you, Tracy? You want to be a countess, baby? And she's like, I'm already a countess. Also, are you supposed to be made of noodles? You're gross. You're bald. Bald isn't sexy. That's why Connery wore wigs in all his movies. You're stupid. If you turn around, I'm going to stab you. How about this? You stab me. Right here in the shoulder. That's hot. And then uh, Blofeld gets called away (laughs) to the sound of Bunt telling Draco's choppers there. She's like, you're in the private airspace? Nine! Verboten! Turn back or we will fire on you? Draco is like, oh no, listen to me, baby. It's okay. Look, uh, it's just, we got uh, some medicine. You want to talk to the boys in Geneva? You give them the call. I'm at a Red Cross, so we're taking a medical splicer to Italy, all right? Check your registration again, all right? We're not the landing. This is a mercy flight. We're bringing blood and the plasma and marijuana and uh, uh, parmesan cheese uh, and and mozzarella to uh, the sick people, all right? Over and out. uh. And Blofeld rightfully is like, sounds like they got it, baby. How about you don't call me for this bullshit? I'm trying to make some time here with this little chippy. But then Tracy hears her dad's voice and she's like, I know that's voice. That's the voice that used to lock me under the stairs when I was little. It's my dad. God, why is that I'm suddenly more horny? So she distracts Blofeld with her special brand of crazy. She's like, so Blofeld, tell me about your plan to kill everyone on Earth. This sounds fascinating. Take me up to the Alpine room. Let's watch the sun come up. Also, I'm going to quote a poem. Sometimes I make poetry in macaroni noodles and I glue them onto a car board paper and then i set them on fire because words mean nothing draco tosses another layer of bullshit on his radio communications when he says i've got the members of the press in my helicopter i'm all sick of your bullshit leave us alone over and out and they're like all right fine just do whatever it is that you want to do this this is the equivalent of walking into a building wearing a hard hat and holding a clipboard and just being like yeah i'm I'm here to do an inspection and then just going wherever you want (laughs) three helicopters show up and they just start spraying the (laughs) evil lair with bullets immediately attack with his red cross stuff on the front of it which i think is actually a war crime to disguise yourself as humanitarians of course it is (laughs) tracy inside she cracks a bottle on the counter and starts taking out two henchmen remember dude tracy is insane and this is not the first time she's broken a (laughs) bottle to fend off a would-be attacker the minute that she used the broken neck of a bottle to defend herself i fell in love i love this woman (laughs) She knows how to fight Irish, and I respect that, Chad. One henchman starts choking her, and she really seems to get into it. (laughs) Yeah, of course she does. That's what gives her the super strength to fight back. She gets all horned up. Oh, God, I'm about to pass out. Oh, that's when it's best. And then... wrestles with him and throws him <laughs> through some lattice and shit and then finally just whips him around onto some spikes and that probably made her come like the minute he died she was like oh fuck yes the helicopters all land and then these resistance fighters hop out to save tracy but mostly blow up the evil lair <laughs> right there one dude has a flamethrower chad it's awesome it yeah. is the absolute best there <laughs> These free fighters, they're jumping around and then Bond jumps out and he sees Tracy and then Draco's there and everything's looking good. And then one scientist shows up with a beaker and he chunks it at James Bond and it blows up on the wall. And I'm like, you know what? That guy should really be employee of the month this go round. The freedom fighters, they start setting all of these charges into this hillside evil lair to blow it to bits. Bond takes pictures of a map that shows the location of all the female sleeper cells. And then Blofeld 
just pops in to shoot at but not hit James Bond. Mm -hmm. So Bond gives chase after Blofeld. The Freedom Fighters set the Chargers to explode in five minutes. And Draco says, let's go, I'm in. James Bond, he knows how to schedule. He's got to watch. And then the henchmen and Draco are getting back into the helicopters. And Tracy says, father, I won't leave James Bond. I won't do it. And Draco punches his daughter in the face knocking her unconscious hey spare the rod spoil the child eh? that's what he says yeah he, he punches his daughter out and then throws her in in the helicopter and then the bomb goes off as blofeld and bond kind of leap from this facility to the snow outside uh-huh. they make their way down to the bobsled course yep then they're bobsledding after each other there's a bit where blofeld almost blows himself up with a grenade when he drops it in his bobsled but then he gets it and throws it behind him where it belongs and it blows up the track behind him and james bond has to do a real leap to safety to not be blowed up by this grenade i thought he got blowed up and blown out maybe so but there's a real good laugh that blofeld has here <laughs> yeah it's a real like <laughs> fuck you and i really appreciated that as well this bobsled sequence is pretty good yeah it's fun and also it's the first time i ever i think i ever saw how the inside of a bobsled works with the little pulleys like a kite or something yeah i was like oh okay well i guess you do steer something i never yeah. knew that it, it's nice to learn something when you watch a movie I, don't, I didn't understand the rules of that fucking card game, but I understand bobsleds better now. One thing I really liked about this sequence was the editing. A lot of times when you watch a movie that has um, an action sequence, it's easy to get confused when the editing is bad. But when you're watching an action sequence like this and you fully know where you are and what's going on at every moment, it really snaps together nice. You know who's what. They're shooting at each other. Um, Blofeld sprays frozen ice shards back at Bond to try to slow him down. It's really tight. It's very cool and then the hoisting on uh, his own petard happens though when Blofeld blows Bond out of his bobsled only to put him in position to kind of cut Blofeld off. He jumps on his bobsled yeah. so they're both on the same. Hey look th I'm skitching <laughs> and so James Bond is holding on to the back of the bobsled and then they're wrestling some more inside the bobsled kind of at the last moment James Bond kicks Blofeld up to a standing position just as like a, a limb passes overhead and the fork of that limb catches Blofeld and presumably I thought like broke his neck. I thought he was dead. I think this movie has a lot of head fake. So here, yeah, you think he's dead, but he's not. Nah. And it, that pays off kind of hilariously in a minute, but Bond is out in the snow. He has defeated his enemies. St. Bernard finds him and he's like, hey, where's the brandy, huh? Come here, dog. I'll catch you open and that's how I'll stay warm out here. I thought they smelled beard on the outside. Sit, Cujo. <laughs> Bond and Tracy get married. It's a big ceremony. We have a really nice moment. And again, I wish there had been kind of more of this stuff in the movie where M and Draco muse over that time they were on opposite sides of the law a la heat where they're like yeah you, you really got one over me on me that time draco and, oh you guys were so close uh, <laughs> you almost had me <laughs> I think in this scene, he actually references Goldfinger because he says something about how he lost some men during the bullion raid or something like that. Yeah. And so I think that that's a tip of the hat to the movie three movies ago. Here's the thing. This isn't just like a courthouse wedding. This is a big mob wedding. It is Godfather style wedding. There are people everywhere and flowers and booze and dancing and bands. And it is completely over the top. M's there, Q's there, Moneypenny's there. And then Draco goes over to Tracy before she 
she leaves with Bond, and he's like, Remember, Tracy, you need to obey your husband uh, during all things. Promise me. Uh, you know, you're his problem now, okay? Don't come to me for all your crazy cuckoo make him up a nonsense, all right? This is all James Bond's problem, okay? <laughs> Not Draco's. And Draco tries to pay Bond off, and he's like, Hey, you can keep your money. First of all, is it made out to cash? I'm going to need to make sure. Wait a minute. It is cash. That's no good. I only accept checks made out to cash. I, I think the reason Bond didn't take the money is that that might be his out. Like, if he didn't take the cash, the deal isn't official. He could just show up and leave her passed out on the front doorstep and then disappear and we're done and done. Right, there's no, like, well, Clause B says, if I don't accept the money, I can leave any time unless there's no children. And it's at this point, Bond looks over and he sees Money Penny, and she looks so sad. And then she and Bond kind of exchange this slight understanding wave goodbye and then bond stops and he takes his hat and he tosses it over to money penny kind of as the last time and i found this to be a really touching moment for a james bond movie they don't have many of them and this one really stood out to me hmm. all right and then uh so after they take off you don't even remember it oh my, your heart is made of stuff clearly it is not i just don't i think that that relationship <laughs> isn't all that fun so on the road they get laughed at by some teenagers i want to have three girls and three boys <laughs> and he's like for starters it's terrifying he's like hey tracy that sounds great but you know what we've got all the time in the world that'd make a great song i'm gonna start putting together some lyrics and music a little bit later in fact Ghostbusters. In fact, if this movie had been called all the time in the world instead of on Her Majesty's Secret Service, probably would have been better. As this convertible full of teenagers uh, speed by, they might be hip because they scream out, Say it with flowers, man. We're going to get high. <laughs> Bond pulls the car over. He gets out and he starts taking off these strings of flowers that have been woven together off of their car. And then Tracy says, you've given me the best gift ever, a future. And then Bond and Tracy, they kind of exchange this playful back and forth, kind of, you know, newlywed love. And then a car comes speeding down the road and we see that Blofeld is driving the car. Hilariously in a neck brace. Hilariously. <laughs> and Bond leans out the window with a machine gun and fills James Bond's car full of bullets. Yes. Bond sees Blofeld's driving. Bond gets back into the driver's seat and there is a bullet that has gone through the windshield and right into the forehead of his new bride, Tracy. Yes. And Bond holds his wife and he weeps. And then a motorcycle cop comes around to kind of help out and he stops and looks into the car. And Bond looks over and he says, it's all right. It's quite all right. She's having a rest. We'll be going on soon. There's no hurry, you see. We have all the time in the world. And then Bond kisses the wedding ring on Tracy's finger and he holds his wife in his arms and he puts his face against her and he just sobs roll credits yes i love the ending of this movie i wish they hadn't undone it or not undone it in in the sense that she comes back but i wish that they hadn't let her die at the end of this one so easily it would have been interesting for a couple of movies to have that kind of james bond who is balancing this life with being sucked back into the spy game and whatnot but that's how the book ended. i mean fine just take it as a movie my problem is that i think 
think the relationship that he and Tracy share is the most interesting part of the movie, but it's also the one that feels the most rickety in terms of the construction of it. The front end of it, it's like, okay, they're following in love. And then there's this middle section where she's just not in it and he's fucking whoever. And then she shows up and he's like, oh, right. <laughs> I was supposed to be with you in this movie. And so I think that softens some of the punch of the ending. But I do think uh-huh. that the back end of this movie is way better than the front and as a whole is way better than Goldfinger. I completely agree. I had fun with this movie. You know, in watching it, I found myself imagining what future George Lazenby James Bond films would have been like had he embraced the role with as much gusto and enthusiasm as he does in this film. Because knowing that he shouldn't have ever been James Bond and seeing how all of this plays out, he's just having a hell of a good time in this movie. Yeah, I, I don't think he's a great actor. I think he's fine. I think he comes off a, a little wooden uh, on occasion. Are, wait, are you talking about Sean Connery? Are you talking about Roger Moore? Are you talking about Timothy Dalton? Are you talking about Pierce Brosnan? No, I'm talking about Lassenby as 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 Bond. <laughs> They're all stiff and wooden. Like, I think that Daniel Craig is probably the only actor who plays James Bond that is a real actor that's doing real things with this character. And I think that that's just because of the time and the place in which his version of Bond is made. Right. There is that running through line of there being a very staid, stoic performance for this character. But I do think that Lazenby in in particular, like you can see him wrestling with this accent. You know, like he's not he's not an actor. Connery has a screen presence, even though I don't think he's a commonly attractive guy. Whereas Lazenby is a much more commonly attractive guy, but kind of lacks the spark of a Connery. I think on the back after the Connery films he doesn't give a shit and I think in this movie Lazenby is doing the absolute best that he can Mm -hmm. and because of his enthusiasm for what he's doing I think he pulls it off I like Lazenby better than I like Connery I think Connery just comes across as an arrogant shithead I think the scene where Lazenby's Bond is running scared and the scenes with he and Tracy where he's showing some sense of humanity works really well I don't think Connery could have pulled that off I think it'd be like ah Tracy like here's what's gonna happen All right, we're gonna get married but it's it's going to be what I'm going to call an open marriage, okay? <laughs> I think you're right. I think the character of Bond in this film goes way more interesting places than the character in Goldfinger, for sure. That's the stuff I really liked about it. I wish the movie in the series had been brave enough to let those changes stand for more than one movie and, yeah. and to let that character be a little... Not dark, because the more movies are on the heels of this, to have the, a little bit of gravitas with that character. Because at a certain point in the more series there is no gravitas left at all in one of those movies he does go to visit the grave of tracy so they do have a callback to it but where this is actually done better is in mission impossible Yes, the the Mission Impossible series is sort of the James Bond movies for people like me that don't give a shit about James Bond and yeah. and want and want a stupider spy movie that's just like, hey, here's the villain. There's no overarching story between the movies, really. Well, there's a common thread of Ethan Hunt and his wife. Yes, that that carries over between at least three of those films. Yeah, sure. And they do a good job of connecting that through line and giving it a sense of emotional weightiness mm-hmm. that you certainly don't find in the James Bond which is why I enjoy this one so much because you don't see that level of caring maybe a little bit in the Daniel Craig movies but in anything preceding his films it's more just like hey baby let's go in here and fuck by the way look at this watch it also turns into a blender what kind of frozen margarita do you want and like I said we're around the corner from episode 3 of this season 
And Bo, what's coming up on episode three? Please tell us all about it because I need to know what movies I'm supposed to watch over the next two weeks. <laughs> okay, the very next film we are going to be doing is the Roger Moore classic, <laughs> A View to a Kill, which features Christopher Walken, yes. Grace Jones. Oh, yes. And a fantastic Duran Duransel. Oh, my God. This is going to be awesome. It's not going to be on Her Majesty's Secret Service awesome, but it's going to come close. I think we are going to have a very good time with it. If nothing else, we are going to trot out some truly, truly questionable walk-in impressions. Yeah, we haven't done that yet. Yeah, so uh, it's going to be a welcome to the show for for him and for Grace Jones. There's some welcome backs from uh, your Patrick McNee. And a hello to Tanya Roberts, who I don't think we're going to see the last of on this program. Probably <laughs> So, as always, like, rate, review. Again, surprisingly, we've been getting more reviews and more emails and more feedback on social media. Let us know what you think or not. You know, just send us good vibes and uh, and we'll take them as they come. Bo, any final thoughts on, on Her Majesty's Secret Service? Yeah, out of two whole James Bond movies now, I like half of one. <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah, yeah, I feel like it's a win. And it's a bit of a surprise. We will see you all in two weeks. Thank you for listening. Crikey! Throw another bond on the bobby.